0: Get three coffins ready. My mistake, four coffins.
1: I'm Lindsay Wilkins. And this week is the first episode of our Western Sergio Leone series, The Man Who Changed Cinema. Cue the Morricone score. amazing series off we're going to be looking at one maestro with another maestro because we well of course we are because we're doing albert peon's omega doom and of course leone's a fistful of dollars and here with me so excited to hang out and talk uh, especially about albert he is of course one of the meatheads from action for everyone it is the action professor it is mike scott hey how's it going
2: Hey, Linz, I am good. I am good. Thank you so much for uh, for having me on again to do this and for giving me yet another opportunity to uh, talk about Albert.
1: I will give you all the... I think people should give you the opportunity to talk about Albert, who unfortunately did RIP Pass Away, which is sad because he was just such one of those original filmmakers as we're going to get into. But there's something very special when you get to talk about Albert because you he's one of your favorite directors. He You can there's a uniqueness to him that you really kind of are able to tap into.
2: I appreciate that. Yeah, I definitely, you know, and it's funny for the longest time, I probably would not have considered myself to be a big Albert Pian fan until probably about four or five years ago. Uh, And then I just kind of started realizing a, this guy who I had admittedly, like a lot of people kind of made fun of, But like yet somehow my entire life had just made movie after movie that I absolutely loved. And so I was like, "What? well, wait, if this guy just keeps making movies that I love, is he really a bad director? Is he really like this? Oh, no, no, he's actually brilliant. And I fucking love him. And so I finally like made peace with that. And now, yeah, I've been trying to sing the praises of him as much and as often, sadly, too little, too late, uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but uh, he, he lives on in, in movies like Omega Doom. And that's all we can ask for.
1: He, he really, really does. I, cause I used to remember watching uh, Nemesis for the first time and not knowing what to make of it because there's something so unusual about it, even though you can tell, I mean, he wears his influences on the sleeve, like as is will get into with, with uh, Omega Doom, but, yeah you're just like what is this this is a flavor i've never had before even though i can kind of see the components but then really god so no to talk albert with you is always always a pleasure and this feels like a particularly albert movie with of course leone just really getting into his style with his goddamn second second official movie so this is going to be an amazing double
2: yeah, I watched both of them yesterday and it was uh, it was a delight to uh, to rewatch both of these back to back. It was uh, it, it, it. They played great together. I'll tell you that much.
1: They really, really did. Um, and just before we just jump into this double, of course, Action for Everyone just seems to be taking over the world at the moment. Uh, meatheads and Tank Tops United.
2: Yeah, yeah, they they definitely, you know, I like to consider myself the lesser meathead of the the meatheads, <laughs> but uh But yeah, no, uh, you know, again, uh, we just are doing this thing that we think is fun for us to do. And uh, we're just happy people seem to be interested in coming along for the ride. We've got some some stuff coming up uh, that, you know, we can't really talk about yet. But uh, most of that's half the time. You know, people are always amazed that we get some of the guests that we get. And the reality is almost every single one of those episodes has come together at the last possible minute because well especially actors are very fickle and uh so trying to you know so it's one of those things where that's why we never like plug anything ahead of time because we we've had times where I you know not to not that I would ever like I'm not saying this to call him out but just as a perfect example Timo uh Gijanto hmm. you know, we rescheduled that three or four times before we finally were able to get him. Um,
1: Yeah. And then he spent most of the episode episode calling out Liam, which was hilarious from memory, but no, I mean, I could, you get through the meathead thing online, but the, your episode, your series is incredibly thoughtful. You do have these amazing conversations. I really love the one with Philip Tan. That was an amazing um, interview and just his insight into how the different levels of uh, filmmaking uh, worked. And then you talked about martial law, which always made me happy and sort of that kind of thing. But yeah, no, it's an incredibly thoughtful show on how the filmmaking of action actually works compared to everything
2: else, so. Well, and one of the things that's been so amazing to me about it is the people like Philip Tan who... Man, these people they want they have stories. They have so many stories and nobody's asking them about that. Yeah. And and they want to tell them. They're out there doing these things and they want to tell. And so that's definitely why we try and focus on, you know, some of the below the line people like like Phil, like uh, like Charlie Yoon, um, you know, these these folks that we can get on that they're not getting people asking them for these big interviews, you know, as much as I love as much as I love Scott and I consider, you know, we're still friends. I was actually mm. just talking to him today. It's like dude was just in John Wick 4, right? Scott's yeah. done more media, you know, it's it's actually kind of funny because I felt like when I was doing Adkins Undisputed, I'm like, oh, these are good stories. And now I've heard him tell those stories to like 25 <laughs> other outlets. And it's yes. like, I, you know, whatever, I'm not special, but, yeah. uh, but no, but like you get somebody like Philip Tan on and, and he, yeah, he's got all, he, he's just, he's just got such a wealth of experience and it's like other media outlets, you know, not that we're a media outlet, but media outlets collider places like that. They really should be ashamed. They're not trying to set up more interviews with these people because they, they, they're just, this is good. This is good content. I mean, if you want to be crass about it, it's just somebody like Phil Tan is good content. You could get an hour-long conversation with him. You could easily, in the SEO world, you could milk that for six articles, no problem. Just sit down with the man for an hour and he'll give you so much you can write about.
1: Exactly, because he's not sort of just the DTV world as much. And I do say that with love because I love both those martial law movies and he was in the first one um as a great villain but he's also worked as stunt coordinators on kind of bigger production so he's kind of got these stories from the breadth of everything and he knows so much so it's kind of like when you're ignoring these kind of guys who kind of work at every single level of filmmaking whether it's sort of behind the scenes or everything like that yeah you're kind of missing out on the kind of minutia that kind of makes movies great I, I don't know It was just yeah that's kind of what I love about it when you get those guest songs I'm like oh, okay, like the Daniel Bernhardt one talking about Barry, but then talking about um, some of the other action movies he's done. It's the the breadth of everything. I'm like, yes, this is the kind of stuff I want to know about filmmaking because it's every single part. It's not just the glamorous part.
2: Yeah, no, you know, my my favorite still, and I think probably always will be, uh, was John Hyams. I mean, that was such an amazing, you know, you know how much I love speaking of favorite directors. You yes. Know? and and so that was such an amazing yeah and then to have him be so generous with his time and generous with his stories and his information and his advice was just absolutely i mean i just sat there that entire episode with my jaw you know hitting oh the i floor. know
1: you were quiet particularly quiet for the mike scott i know and then i went oh this is his boy this is <laughs> yeah yeah no <laughs> he's gonna feel and it so- out beforehand he's just just like going is this happening right now yeah.
2: Yeah. No, it was, it was, it was crazy. So um yeah. So, you know, we've got more, we've got more coming up and we're going to keep doing it as is until the three of us get tired of doing it, which I don't see happening anytime in the near future. I think, you know, I think we're going to be a little better. Like at the time we're recording, you know, we took last week off. Oh. I think we are going to be a little bit better about that, about just kind of being like, do we, especially because so much of our episodes are so kind of, Topical. I mean, we record Sunday morning. I release it Sunday afternoon. We're usually talking about stuff that happened that week. There are some weeks where there just isn't that much happening. And rather than trying to like force an episode, which we've done before, and sometimes that's worked really well, and other times it's kind of been low energy, pretty obvious that, you know, I think we're going to try and start being a little better about, yeah, we'll just take this week off. It's fine. Our, Our audience. Not not to talk about numbers, but our numbers are stable. It doesn't really fluctuate from episode Mm -hmm. to episode. So it's kind of like, well, we don't have to worry as much anymore now. You know, when you start a new podcast, it's so important you put out an episode every week on a regular schedule because otherwise you'll lose your audience. It's like, "Eh, our numbers are stable enough now. You know, we can take a week off and and it's not gonna we're not gonna take that huge hit that like you know, I remember when I first started Atkins Undisputed, if I missed a week, it was like I'd lose like 80% of my listeners, oh, you know, you have and, to and you...
1: like rebuild again from scratch. Yeah. Almost.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we're, we're, we're established enough now that we don't have to worry about that. So that means we can kind of just take our time and, and do it when we have something to talk about. You know, we, we were supposed to talk last week about Indiana Jones and, and the dial of destiny and all three of us were like, do we really have to like, did, like, I mean, sure. The movie's fine. Like I saw it, I didn't hate it, mm-hmm. but like, it wasn't something that really, made any of us excited to talk about it, If it no sense.
1: i get that i mean i like it a little bit more than most people but it was it wasn't the exact exactly the action that i was being drawn to with that movie so it was other things so no i get that i mean you don't have to talk about every single new movie because that then just gets pressure of oh god i have to go see this movie now or my favorite thing is when someone tricks the, the one person who doesn't want to see it into seeing it and then the other two don't
2: yeah, no, that was exactly what happened with Dial of Destiny. I'm the only yeah. asshole that actually went out and saw that movie. <laughs> um so yeah, yeah, you know, uh so I will be talking about it when we record tomorrow. Uh and and you know, at least I I paid my 15 bucks. I'm gonna talk about that movie. But yes. uh but yeah.
1: <laughs> and, and with that, we're gonna get into a movie that we're both seen and both gonna talk about. And that is of course. Uh, Albert Pune's Omega Doom. Now, as I like to imagine, I'm an imaginary rep theater. The curtains are opening and Mike, what is going to be your first trailer for Omega Doom?
2: Well, so I kind of went with a theme. It's a pretty obvious theme for all of my trailers, but I mean, it also makes sense, which is every one of my trailers is going to be a movie that is in some way based on or influenced by Dashiell Hammett's Red Harvest, uh, because that's what Yojimbo was based on, even though Kurosawa denies it. That's what Fistful of Dollars was based on, and that's what Omega Doom was based on. So to go with the Omega Doom vibe, I am going for a very, very uh, kind of sleazy exploitation version of Red Harvest, a sci fi sort of fantasy epic starring David Carradine called The Warrior and the Sorceress, the warrior and the sorceress on a planet lit by twin suns,
0: evil warlords battle to control the fate of an entire dynasty. mighty warrior rises out of legend to free an enslaved sorceress. There was a time when I could command and I would obey. Together they forged the mystical sword whose blade cannot be broken. The ultimate struggle between good and evil.
1: I have not seen this in so long, but now that you've said Red Harvest, that makes so much more sense.
2: Yep. Yep. It, it's I think they acknowledge they actually based it on this full of dollars. Um, but but yeah, it's a you know, it's an Italian uh, it's an Italian uh sword and sandals kind of movie that came out in 1984 i guess it's actually argentinian i apologize i just pulled it up but uh same basic plot you know distant distant planet David Carradine plays this warrior who rolls into this town uh, and sees that there's two warring gangs, uh, announces his services are for the highest bidder. Of course, he turns out not to be as smart as he thinks he is. And everything, you know, goes bad for him until he comes back and, and wreaks his revenge. It is most notable to me. I have not seen it in years, but it is most notable to a very young Mikey, not a very young Mikey, but high school age Mikey because the lead actress uh, an Italian actress named Maria Sokas oh. is topless for the entire movie and so you know yes. it, it is burned into my brain this movie is burned into my brain it was a very formative movie uh I I have no idea how well it holds up this this is the same era in which roger corman was was down in argentina making things like death stalker uh so you know if you've seen the death stalker movies you know the kind of vibe and the look this is going to have but i think the trailer is going to play incredibly well with omega doom because obviously albert his first movie was the sword and the sorcerer yes. which this is clearly derivative of i mean even the title is derivative of that so i think you've got this whole sort of exploitation, low budget, full circle here of Albert making the sword and the sorcerer, Corman ripping him off with the warrior and the sorcerer yes. based on Red Harvest, which then years later we get Albert Albert making his own sci-fi version of Red Harvest with Omega Doom.
1: It, it really, really is. I because I, I can't remember even why I was sort of watching this because I this is a genre of fantasy that, uh, sword and sandals fantasy is a, something that I'm still trying to find entry ways into except for when I watched sort uh, um, Albert Peel's one, and I'm like, oh, this is the, the incredible. But yeah, I do remember the top. <laughs> it's just like, is she ever going to put on clothes? No, no, she's not. This is this is what's happening. Um, I have very few memories of it, but yeah, I don't know how well it holds up, but I think it's this amazing kind of, when you see sort of a certain plot line kind of thing, and then people just kind of putting it in different genres to see if it can work, which happens all the time in some of the best movies, as we'll get into, do this but yeah this is going to be an absolutely perfect
2: perfect trailer yeah i think so i i think it'll play i think it'll play nicely and, and for people who just want to look it up i mean if you just the the poster is is an absolutely terrific boris vallejo uh old school 80s fantasy poster oh my god and, it, and yeah. it's it's one of the few movies where i actually think the movie kind of does live up to the poster art i mean the poster art Death is a, right <laughs> the right original. the poster it, it, which is also a Boris Vallejo poster. But yeah, no, this one is, this is, you know, a buff David Carradine standing next to a very naked woman. And I'm like, that's pretty much the movie that you get. So it is what it is on the tin.
1: Yeah. And they, add, I think they add muscles to Carradine. I mean, Carradine's always been kind of cut, but I think just looking at his legs, I'm like going, did they? Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's almost like Arnold Schwarzenegger's bodybuilding days kind of um, thing going on. That's, am- that's amazing. Um, no, that's going to be a great, great trailer. Um, I didn't necessarily go with any kind of theme or kind of did. Actually, you know, what am I going to do? Actually, no, for my first one, I'm going to go for a dystopian movie that I love, but I just wanted to, there was a vibe thing going on, but I'm going to go for Jun Bong Ho's 2014. This is your world
0: save humanity humanity. the engine lasts forever the population must always be kept in balance
2: i said sit down passengers eternal order flows from the sacred engine we must occupy our preordained
1: position i belong to the front
2: you belong to the tail
0: no, don't. Keep your place. Those bastards in the front think they own us. will be different when we get there. What you say? We take
2: the engine. And we control the world.
0: When is the time? Soon.
2: Love that movie.
0: It's so good.
1: Eating babies and everything. It is such... Well, I think about my, the great trio of the three amazing uh, South Korean directors that keep on sort of popping um, is that they are so good at construction when it comes to to their movies, particularly um, uh, Bong Ho and Snowpiercer is just the example of that. I remember seeing the trailer and going, seriously, a goddamn train. And that sounds seriously dumb. And then you watch it and you realize how he's doing it and how he's constructing it. It is all about this. How do you find hope when there is no hope um, as we'll get into with, uh, Omega Dome, but yeah, it's an amazing goddamn movie.
2: Yeah, I mean, I really have nothing to add other than it does have one of, I think, one of the best action scenes of the last twenty years, which is when Chris Evans and the SWAT looking guys are are shooting each other as the they're shooting each other through the windows of the train as it's like coming around this oh, bend, yes. yeah, and it's it's just so well done and so well staged um you know and it's a it's a nasty it's a it's a hard nasty mean little movie Um, it's a very
1: mean movie especially considering when you see what the end game is of everything that has happened you're just like whoa
2: yeah yeah i mean again you know i guess uh well i guess i won't spoil it but other than to say that yes our our captain america uh hero of the movie is uh less than captain america let's just put it that way
1: yes yes he is and it is it is putting um people in positions of yeah there's there's absolutely kind of there's no sort of morale we'll get into the whole mor- i guess morality as we get into the, both movies because that is kind of the theme but yeah when there's no kind of center of morality what is your morality and that is a movie that is constantly questioning that even though you think he's on this kind of good quest it's yeah there's so much going on in this movie
2: yeah, absolutely. Very, very heady. Much, much headier, uh, I, I think it's fair to say. And, and and realistically a much better movie than Omega Doom. But oh. uh but I think the trailer will play very well with it.
1: Yes. And what is gonna be your second trailer?
2: So I um I'm gonna go with the again, kind of another obvious pick, but I think it'll 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 still play well because I'm going to go with the adaptation of Red Harvest that is probably the closest to Red Harvest, uh, which is Walter Hill's 1996 Last Man Standing with Bruce Willis.
0: Yes.
2: Well, you came to the right place, sir, because everybody here is making a lot of money. His name's
0: Smith. At least that's what he says. Did you get that car of yours fixed yet? I was hoping maybe you could help
2: me pay the damages. I guess maybe you'll have to kill me. It'll hurt if I do.
0: How would you like to kill Strathie? I figure you for the kind of guy that goes to the highest bidder. thousand dollars, Mr. Doyle. Nobody's worth that much. Shot some of our guys. Yes, I did. Once it deserved it. Mr. Doyle thought, you to out a deal. Somehow, I had the feeling the walls were moving in on me. Now, you've been going back and forth playing both sides. making yourself a lot of money out of all this. For one little second, you think you're going to get away free and clear. Paying the price. Yep. No exceptions. Everybody pays the price.
2: You know, this is the one that really does, you know, Red Harvest takes place in the 20s uh, during the Prohibition. So th- this is very much in that line, in that vibe. Again, very similar plot, follows all the same beats. But you do have, uh, I think, an interesting contrast in stars in the way Willis chooses to play his character. Uh, which is he's very uh, he's very sort of half turn and and stoic in this versus the way Rucker Howard plays his character uh, in in Omega Doom, which is he's actually kind of surprisingly like light the way he chooses he to play to yeah. play the character. Um, and so I think it's a nice contrast. I think the trailers will sort of play well because of that contrast.
1: It really is. I was actually, we'll get into it, but I was very surprised by Brad Howard's performance, considering he has played this sort of character many, many times before, and each time it feels different. But I love, I love this movie so much. Um, it was a surprise, uh, again, to sort of um, watch it. It was kind of one of those ones that no one talked about from Walter Hill, and then you watch it, and you're like, why is no one talking about this movie? It is just so well done. I mean, you've got Christopher Walken, Bruce Stern, David Patrick Kelly back, and... Um, Leslie Mann shows up it's I mean it's just one of those casts those 90s casts that you're just like going yes I mean Patrick Kilpatrick comes back <laughs> it's yeah I don't know it is just one of those movies where I was kind of surprised that no one talks about more because I'm like dude I mean I understand it got overshadowed it was the mid 90s but seriously have you seen this movie
2: You know, it it really suffered for me when it came out because in the 90s, uh, I'll admit this, and our friend uh, Larry Sternschein has admitted the same thing, that sort of in the 90s, he and I were really snobby about action movies that weren't from Hong Kong directors. Ah. And so for me, this one really suffered because there's some scenes of, of Bruce Willis dual wielding, you know, and, and Walter Hill really doing some stuff that was not very common in American film, but mm. at the same, it's the same year The Broken Arrow came out, yes. right? So it's like, well, okay, that's cute, Walter Hill, that you're going to do, you know, have Bruce Willis dual wield when, you know, I got John Woo, I got the, the master over here doing the same thing. And so For a long time, I just had kind of I saw Last Man Standing. I didn't really care for it. But as I've gone back and over the years watched a lot of those movies that I initially wrote off because they weren't Hong Kong influenced movies or, Mm -hmm. you know, directed by Hong Kong directors. I've come around to realize I'm a moron. Last man standing rules. It, it's a it's again much kind of like Snowpiercer. It's a really nasty little movie. It's certainly, I think, yes. one of the one of the meanest of the Red Harvest adaptations. And that is the one thing that makes it probably the closest above and beyond just being story similarly. It's the one that's the closest to Hammett. If you've ever read Hammett's writing, he was a nasty writer. He he liked to write about nasty people. His heroes were not heroes. Um, and, and this is the one that I think captures that vibe probably the best out of all the adaptations.
1: Yeah, because I am a little bit behind my Dashiell Hammett. I've only ever read The Thin Man um, because I watched that movie and went, "Well, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. So I do need to catch up on Red Harvest and The Maltese Falcon and all all this because he does seem a little bit more hard-boiled than even Raymond Chandler. Who also like to write about nasty people doing nasty things. Um, but yeah, no, this is an amazing movie. If you haven't seen it, I'm a huge fan of kind of westerns that aren't set in the, eight, the the 1900s or the 1800s sort of this really weird like um red hill australian movie from 210 this one um there's a there's an amazing thing when you play take a western out of its main historical context and put it somewhere else that i kind of just love and this I, I even though this is prohibition but i this is the same thing
2: yeah, I agree. I agree completely. Um, you know, that's what makes it, you know, it's got all the hallmarks of a Western dusty town, but again, it's the twenties. So they have cars, you know, Bruce Willis is, is goal wielding 45s instead of, uh, you know, automatic 45s, nineteen nineteen elevens 1911s, instead of your Navy, uh, you know, 45s that you yeah. see in something like fistful of dollars. Um, no, a perfect example of how much nastier Dashiell Hammett's writing is, is uh, Maltese Falcon's a great example. that the, They completely, n- I love the movie. And I think John Huston made as edgy and nasty of a movie as he could have given the confines of the studio system that he was working in at the time. Yeah. But there is so much in the original story about how Sam Spade, absolutely detested his partner, just hated him, could not stand him, was happy that he's been murdered, <laughs> yes. is relieved to be rid of him. But the problem is if somebody kills your partner, God damn it, you have to do something about it. And that's literally the whole reason he gets involved in the case and does all of this is is just because of this twisted sense of morality, but he's not a good person. You know, he's not upset. He's not trying to avenge his partner. It's just when a man kills your partner, you, you can't let that slide regardless of how big of a piece of shit your partner might've been. When a man kills your partner, you do something about it. And that's just, that's an edge that's missing from so much of, of the adaptations of, of Hammett's more, uh, Phil Moore stuff. You know, obviously the thin man is even the book of the thin man is, uh, a, a much lighter fluffier it you is. know you know but uh but yeah his his more hard-boiled work uh most of the adaptations are really missing an edge very similar to raymond chandler adaptations they just can't quite catch that that edge you know uh the way that the, the occasional ones like say for chandler like the long goodbye has yes. that nasty edge yeah but uh and that's what I like about Last Man Standing is because Walter Hill is a nasty man who I can absolutely wrap my brain around viewing the world in which I hate my partner, but if somebody kills him, you do something about it. Yeah, uh, I can absolutely yeah, see, I can him see him having that, that worldview, and so he brings that to Last Man Standing in a way that a lot of other adaptations don't.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to sort of getting into those ones because you're right. Because when I was when I usually watch Raymond Chandler adaptations, like oh there isn't that callous nastiness that those books have because they are hard-boiled for a reason and then you watch the long goodbye i'm like oh there it is you might not think it's gonna have it in there but then that guy glasses that poor woman and all there's a few other things that happened that is just men being awful throughout that whole entire movie and it's yeah that's exactly yeah but i was yeah i had this in sort of play as well because i do love this movie so so much Actually, you know what? i probably get in trouble for playing the trailer for this, but I think because it is technically a TV show, but it's only 20 minutes, and I think it would re- work really well as a um, short movie. So I'm going to play The Simpsons episode, Itchy and Scratchy Land from 1994, season six.
0: We're now approaching our
2: final destination, Itchy and Scratchy Land, the amusement park of the future where nothing can possibly go wrong. Not possibly go wrong.
0: <laughs>
2: that's the first thing that's ever gone wrong. There's no need to murmur, ma'am. Here at Itchy and Scratchy Land, we're just as concerned about violence as you are. That's why we're always careful to show the consequences of deadly mayhem so that we may educate, as well as horrify.
1: When do you show the consequences?
2: On TV, that mouse pulled out that cat's lungs and played them like a bagpipe. But in the next scene, the cat was breathing comfortably. Just like in real life. Hey, look over there! Back, you robot! Nobody ruins my family vacation, but me and maybe the boy. Melbourne <laughs> ruins my
1: holidays, except for me and maybe the boy. I read what it always breaks my heart when you when you read what uh, Albert Pon wanted to do with the movie and then what he had to do. But the whole idea was that Disneyland, um the robots in Disneyland kind of came to life after a nuclear holocaust, and that was kind of going to be the setting or like a Disneyland theme park kind of thing. And I thought, oh my God, that would have been amazing just to sort of see this environment, but what we got from Omega mega is actually really incredible. But all I could think about was um that episode of the simpsons which shows my age but yeah that's that's what i'm gonna show yeah we're doing it to your scratchy land
2: (laughs) well it'll it'll work too because uh you know omega doom is so short uh, as so many of albert's albert's movies were uh you know you could you could put a a simpsons episode in here and still we'll still be under two hours
1: exactly and this one is particularly great it's got some really great lines it's just the way it makes fun of disneyland uh, I know that Fox was trying to crack down on violence, especially, and they didn't want them to do Itch and Scratchy anymore. And Simpson just goes, oh, we're just going to make it more violent, <laughs> which is where this episode came from. So it, um, it was an interesting one to kind of read about and how difficult it was to produce because they had to redraw all their sets and everything like that. But yeah, it's, it's a classic for a reason.
2: Yeah, that's a great call. I love it. <laughs> that's a great call.
1: Yeah. And with that, we're going to be getting into a movie that I knew I was – Gonna be surprised by because Albert always surprises me. But yeah, I was again surprised by Omega Doom.
0: Rutger howard Who are you? You're an outsider. In an epic science fiction thriller. They want the world all to themselves. In a powerful new vision of our future. The Roms and the Droids got here just about the same time, and then the killing started. When mankind faces extinction. Track down even the slightest trace of a human being. I've killed your crime before. You need to discuss your behavior. The only one who can save us. Thanks. I'm gonna kill my mind. Isn't human at all? You are a machine. You are a mega doom. You died and meet you, God. You did. What your Omega Doom. Very persuasive.
1: Mike, we did touch on the fact that you've sort of really just realized that Albert is your boy um in the last five years um but so had you when did you really first see omega do was it sort of when you're just like hunting down vhs's or just coming across different um yeah you know it would have
2: been it would have been watching it some night on most of my most of my albert pune experiences were movies that i watched on like late night cinemax or hbo uh, you know, so it would have been it would have been then it probably would have been I don't exactly remember when to tell you the truth, but it would have been, you know, at one in the morning, some Saturday night when I was yeah. in, you know, came out in 96. I'd have been a sophomore in college mm-hmm. would have been would have been what some Saturday at at one in the morning, Um, you know, and again, it didn't it didn't. I didn't dislike it Um, at the time. It was it, again, I think even back then. I could always, you know, this is a year after Heat Seeker, which I have loved since day one. So, you know, I was still on the the Pune chain. Hmm. It didn't really this is really when you start to see his budgets really hurt him, you yeah. know. Uh and uh, and so it didn't, you know, stick with me too much, but uh, but I've revisited it a few times since then and 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 revisited it. This is the first Rewatching it yesterday was kind of the first time, like I said, since I've really just come around on how much I love Albert Pune mm. uh, and and all those things in 1996 that would have. This is my experience when I rewatch any of his movies. All those things that would have kind of turned me off in 1996, I find so they're, they're features, not bugs anymore. Yeah, right. You know, it would have turned me off in 96 that this was essentially shot in one town square, like one location, Mm. you know, and now I'm looking at it going, yeah, but he makes that one location. My friend Billy Jarrett pointed this out on Twitter. You know, he makes that one location feel epic. He really does. And and so it's one of those things now where it's like, yeah, they become features, not bugs for me. Uh, and, And so... I, I just absolutely had a blast watching it this time. Um, certainly, you know, it's the same year as Nemesis 3, which is, eh, you know, not I'll I'll defend Albert as much as humanly possible, but uh, I fully acknowledge not all of his movies are winners. And Nemesis 3 is not a winner. No, uh, not. But this one's actually pretty damn good. This one, this one, uh, I really, I, I think, does a lot of of really good Albert Pugh stuff.
1: No, I love it when a filmmaker can pull off a of one location, uh film and make it epic um i think that is such a it because it shows more inju- uh, ingenuity I can't, I can't speak today uh as usual it's got this kind of thing where they have to kind of think about what angles they're using and, and kind of everything like that and he does that as well i mean i sort of i mean albert Pugh you had to find a um desolate apocalyptic uh set like no one else like if you watch the first nemesis or even uh, the second nemesis, that's more in the desert. Um, But he had this kind of thing to it. And this one, yeah, it's just kind of one location and probably just a couple of places in this thing, but he makes everything look interesting and kind of epic and it makes it work. And it kind of gives it this amazing claustrophobic feel, which I think really works to the movie's benefit, especially when you get to the bartender and um, head. That they're stuck. They there is nowhere for them to actually go because they're surrounded by assholes and who are going to kill them as soon as they try anything. So it is, um, it, yeah. I think it actually really works to the movie's benefit the way he sh- the way he shoots everything.
2: Yeah, I agree, and and you know, and this is something that he really refined uh, because this kind of. For people who've not, like, watched all of Albert's filmography, he he definitely has a shared world um, that a lot of his movies... It's almost like this timeline, but the chronology, it's not a very chronological timeline, but mm. Cyborg, Nemesis, all the Nemesis movies, Nights, this... They all basically kind of fit in that same world, and so... Yeah. If you watch them all, there's a really uniform look to a lot of them, no matter how big the budgets or low the budgets are. He makes them all look like they belong in the same world. And and that's that's what he does here is this is such a, a you know, you've got really like his global story is the nemesis movies. Yes. And that's the the backbone that runs through all of them. But this makes a really nice, like, little side story. You know, it's almost like uh, it is if you were reading, like, you know, not that I'm comparing Albert's, you know, cyborg nemesis universe to Star Wars. But there's you got your main Star Wars and then you got your little side stories like the Bad Batch or whatever. And this is a side story in that world. And so it makes a lot of sense to me that it doesn't have the scope of nemesis or cyborg. Hmm. It makes a lot more sense that it has this more narrow scope now, which of course that's a function of budget. That's a function of him having to narrow down the scope of what he's able to do. But for the story he's telling, he, he was so good at knowing what his capabilities were and always pushing them to the maximum, but never really trying to exceed them in a way that he wasn't capable of. And so this is a perfect example of that, of, okay, I'm stuck in this one square. I've got a cast of six people. Yeah. Uh, so what am I going to do? Well, I'll tell this sort of intimate little story. I won't tell this epic version of Yojimbo. Oh. I will tell this more intimate version where I'm going to let, Norbert Weiser steal the movie by being this cranky rolling head, you know, mm-hmm. and 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 I'm going to let you know, I'm going to let Tina Cote steal the show as the villain without having to have this army of these robots because I don't, you know, we don't actually need that, right? We need Rutger Hauer fighting Tina Cote. Yes. And we get that. And we that's don't. that's that's good enough. That's all we need and he understands that. And ultimately, it doesn't matter that the scale is that small because the movie works on that small scale.
1: Well, the perfect thing about the Red Harvest uh, Ujimbo story is that you can have it epic, like Ujimbo, which is essentially set in one town, as we'll get into. So you don't really need a big location, but you can make it as big as you want or um, as small as you want. And this is, yeah, this is, this is small. This is literally about... Because he's able to distill it into one man's pointer or one robot because uh uh radka has a robot i got was kind of confused. okay which is the droids which is the robot um which is a concept i love it's just not even humans aren't even part of the equation of this movie except they're an existential threat
2: yeah um, they're like this existential threat right there's yeah. a, this thing out there that that it can come and wipe them out but yeah it's really it's you know mechanical beings fighting other mechanical beings
1: yes um and so he's in but it's kind of his more his point of view on what the world sort of become and he gives this amazing thing of he thinks hope to the bird because he looks after the store one for the first time ever because there has been no living life there's only these kind of robots left you find you kind of know humans are somewhere but you there's very small and they're just at this weird existential threat because the robots feel they have to keep fighting them and it's it's just this kind of amazing thing of, oh, I see this is the world, but now he's got this kind of weird human thing of what is hope, even though it was never a programmed thing. Like when, I think it's Tina Coates or someone else is looking at his memory and she goes, I've never seen a mind like that. Why? It had purpose. Like, um, which is really a cool idea. And so he's kind of, he's still screwing with everyone and he's kind of still sarcastic, but as you said, he's playing it with a lightness. That um, you you don't always see in his performances playing a similar character, if, if I'm making sense.
2: Yeah, no. the The performance that it most reminded me of was his performance in Blind Fury. Uh, that that that's yes. the one where I feel like he had that he has that same lightness, and he's got the sarcasm, but he he really is playing it. You know, he's playing a pretty straight hero in this. Yeah. For as much as we talked about Red Harvest, you know, the hero of Red Harvest isn't a hero. Howard pretty much is a straight hero in this. I mean, it he's setting, he's setting these two sides against one another, not for his own personal gain, but because he's trying to, you know, essentially help make the world a better place and, in yeah. and, and, and for head and for, for, you know, the, the, the bartender. And so it's one of those things where, yeah, he's playing it like a hero and it really works. I, I, I thought of this yesterday when I was watching and I actually tweeted this out that, that, for as much as albert loved to set his movies in these dystopian crapsack worlds or these crime riddled urban environments no. he was such a sentimental humanist at his core he always his movies every single one of them almost has a running theme that kindness will prevail and that is really apparent here in this movie that, that that what's happening here is Rutger Hauer's character, you know, Omega Doom, the guardian angel is trying to bring kindness back to the world. And I yes. thought that that really hit me this time watching it. I was like, damn it, Albert, like this is a stupid fucking low budget Red Harvest knockoff and you're getting me a little choked up here on this one, you know, And and that's what he could do so well.
1: Yeah, because it was a really nice counterbalance as we get into um, Fistful of Dollars that there is this sweetness in this movie and it's from the get-go because as soon as you meet Brad Hauer, he got shot in the head by a human and something clicked in his brain and now he starts questioning everything. And instead of sort of when people start questioning, I'm just asking questions, usually doesn't go in a great direction. But with his character, it is just... um, okay, so what is this? He's looking at the world around him and he's seeing the good people like Head and the bartender and going, well, it's not fair that that guy is constantly kicking his head around like a football because he's literally just wanting to be a a dick about it. Um, And the way he, oh my God, you're you're right. Um, Norbert Weiser just steals the movie and Tina, uh, he's so, so fun of this movie because they just want to be left alone. They just want to be, they were a teacher and a bartender. They weren't, designed to be killers and they just kind of want to live out their lives in peace and they're not able to um and he just sees it and goes oh i can fix that i can just put this side against this side and then it will kind of doesn't completely all work out but it does at the end so it's just a, yeah it's this really sweet little movie that i was not expecting in terms of um the themes
2: yeah no no and it it, it... <laughs> It's 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 such an example of of how Red Harvest works. You know, it, it really is the Die Hard. Before we got Die Hard on a, uh, we had Red Harvest in a uh, Red yes. Harvest in the West, Red Harvest in, in a Samurai movie, Red Harvest because it's such it's such a universally adaptable action movie mm. archetype, and 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 so you can. Do the work at the margins like this, where you can you can have the character who is pretty much good from the get go. Right. He's playing like he's not. But it's pretty clear by the end of the movie, you know, he's coming into this with the best of intentions. He is. Yeah. Or you can have it be like Clint Eastwood, like the man with no name, where he is a self-interested bastard until, you know, he's not anymore. Right. Until he finds something that is worth actually believing in something hmm. and uh but but either one is equally valid within the story and and I like that this is a much nicer much more Nicer is a weird way to describe it, but I like that this is a much more uh, hopeful version of this story. Um, and and again, one of the advantages of having the smaller scale is it does allow us to focus on Anna Katerina is the bartender and and, you know, and Norbert Weiser is the head. And, and you know, we've really got basically only four or five characters in this, and, and it allows each one of them to have enough personality that. I mean, I feel like I know the villains, I, I know the heads of the gang, the gangs in this movie, this is going to sound like sacrilege. I feel like I know them better as characters than I know the heads of the gangs in A Fistful Full of Dollars, um, which you is, do. you know, it's not it's not a criticism, but we get to spend a little more time with them as actual fleshed out characters, not just uh, obstacles for our main hero, uh, to, to have to deal with.
1: Which is something it, that, um, Al, uh, Albert Pewter has always been really good at. Uh, even in some movies that don't work for me, he's always, because he makes, because his budgets are small, he has to go intimate. And I don't think necessarily think that's a bad thing because you understand all the villains' motivation. You sort of understand, uh, especially, uh, Tina Cote's, um you understand her motivation and she's also having an existential crisis of oh hang on a minute was is my can i define my programming is my is there more to life than my programming and my desire to and my programming to go fight um and she's you can see that she's struggling with that and same with the other side she can kind of when he turns her head so she she can see the sunset she's having the same thing of like okay my programming was this but maybe there is actually more to the world than what I was created for, which is a very um blade runner thing because that's what Rutger Howard's character is struggling with. Like he wants to be more than he was made for. Um well, and you yeah. really get
2: that you really get that at the end when um Jill Pierce's character saying Z- yeah. she's the last of the ROMs, you know, and she's talking to Head and the bartender and she said she basically says, you know, I don't want to die. Yeah. And uh and it is, I mean this this is some surprisingly like solid you know william gibson cyber yeah. punk, what's the nature of humanity kind of thing stuck in this albert Pune movie and that's what he does all the damn time and it, it just it, it tickles me so much every time i see it every time i'm like he had a dollar 50 but boy you know you know what there is no budget for his imagination and, exactly. and he was going to stick this stuff in there, regardless of of how little money he had to work with. Uh, and it it really does, I think, come through in this one quite a bit. This is a very, very, you know, sort of philosophically and romantically very much, uh, you know, peak Albert Pune in terms of his worldview and, and, and what he wanted to say in movies
1: yeah, and that's kind of the thing that in my notes I' was struck by. there is no one who had quite the imagination that Albert Pune did. um no, I would say there's a few other directors that tickle me the same way for me. It is always uh, lucio Fulci, but that is just a sort of a me thing in terms of how he uses his filter to kind of make his to make uh movies. And when you've got Albert Pune who makes has to make movies for a dollar fifty. He still has his imagination, I mean, it's there in Sword of the Sorcerer, it's there in Nemesis, it's definitely there in Cy- Cyborg. It's always, even in Captain America to a certain extent, where you're just looking at something weird and like going, okay, yeah, that does not work, but I can see you in there in certain places. And in this one, he's like, yeah, it's one square, but it's a fully fleshed out universe. You know this world, you know how this world works. And I don't, People, people get confused confuse about how a quality of a movie because of its budget and not necessarily what it's trying to do and if you sort of look at the movie down in its level you actually see this is a fully com- thing world these um robots are learning to be human you have one robot who has kind of already gotten there and he's trying to bring everyone else there along with them which is the whole point of the movie he sees an injustice and he's doing something about it unlike the actual original Red Harvest character who's just like, well, I'm here for a job, let's do this, or how can I make money out of this? It is a genuine thing of, well, I could actually make the world maybe a little bit of a better place and I could actually teach these people how to be nice and that life is a thing. Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, in you don't need... I mean, if you think about it, you know, th- this is the great Disney apocalypse that uh, apparently started this, you know, uh, yes. th- that you talked about. If you think about it in this type of crapsack world, you know, we're not going to have very likely large societies. We're going to have small enclaves yes. like this. And so it, it does make sense, it's, you know, and he, he rolls into this small enclave and then he rolls out onto the next one. And 100 miles down the road is going to be another one with the exact same problems, you know, and. So it's very much a it's very much, you know, turning the Red Harvest story into turning that character into Kane from Kung Fu, you know, just just walking the earth, solving problems and and making the world a better place. And uh, it's a very nice touch. It's a very nice way of telling this story that is, again, very uniquely Pune in its worldview.
1: I mean, yeah, Pune was very good at working with archetypes. So we are doing the, uh, the kind of man with no name, the Mad Max, the, um, uh, the, as you said, Kane from Kung Fu or uh, the Hulk from the Hulk, like it's kind of, we'll be using this archetype so often for so, for so long, even with something like Poker Face, we'll keep going back to this kind of thing, but it's through Pune's lens, which I think is so, so goddamn unique. Um, he knows how to use Rajka Howard so goddamn well. And it, it, it's yeah, and this movie is no money and it's just pure filmmaking. And the way he angles he uses for the fight, especially for head, because that poor head's head just keeps getting detached from nearly every single body that um he he tries to get onto. It's it's kept it almost becomes a running joke by the end of the movie.
2: Well, and I love that they they also like make it you know, pretty clear that like reattaching himself is a very slow, painful process for him. So it's so funny because it's like his head keeps I don't know that this was an intentional joke, but I was just chuckling because his head flies off basically if somebody sneezes on him. Yes. But then to reattach is this painful, arduous, time consuming process. And so it's just, it's just hilarious to me that it, it seems like it should be the other way around. But it's such a it's such a nice little joke. And and it, again, it keeps it keeps some levity in a movie that, that needs it and it keeps a little bit of humanity in a movie that needs it um, yes yeah because you, know, you it, need
1: you need the bartender in the in the in the head because i love when they're out they know that radka how is downstairs with um the black hearts they're upstairs and they're just trying to figure out how to save it's like we've got to do something but they know that they don't have the skills so they're just trying to figure things out and and it's just like oh my body's useless so i don't know how i'm gonna do this it's just a really sweet moment between between those two characters who are just yeah. It's like this, and the good kind of keep infecting each character, and it's a really nice cool. It's a cool thing to see.
2: Yeah, and all done in, you know, well, this is, it, this does have one of the great great drawbacks to Albert Pune movies, which is, uh, the opening and ending credits and establishing shots. Uh, are absolutely ridiculous in order to stretch it out to a feature length running time because yeah. the reality is uh, this entire story is told in about 60 minutes
0: yeah it really is uh, yeah
2: it, it's 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 an hour, it's 83 minutes start to finish but the end credits and the opening credits are easily 10 12 minutes combined plus a bunch of establishing shots so really yeah this story is told in about 60 minutes this is efficient. Goddamn storytelling. We are we are having some pretty serious <clears throat> deep dives about characters in a movie that is, like, essentially 60 minutes long.
1: Oh, I know. Because at the end, because he does these amazing credits where he's showing you the, the different sort of faces and everyone's sort of looking at the camera. And then and before that, you get this kind of, uh, I think he's reading a Dylan poem, Brad Hauer. And I'm like, oh, we're going to... And usually it's usually just, a, like, a couple of lines at the end of the movie. He reads the, like nearly the whole poem. I'm like, oh, we're reading the... Oh, yeah, because he needs to make it a feature film because yeah, this movie's an hour and he does so much of that hour with these characters that you're right. They are more memorable than a lot of the characters in *Pistol of dollars, which is considered one of the great movies, which it is for very specific reasons. But I'm remembering the characters from Omega do more than I am the other Leone.
2: I love Leone, but, but characters were not necessarily, you know, certainly uh, certainly, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West is definitely an exception to this. But characters were not necessarily Leone. Leone was all about vibes, yes. which Pune is, too. Yeah. I mean, oh, they're yeah. very they're very vibe-driven filmmakers. But that's why I think this is actually a really interesting Pune movie. Because this one, I think, has better characters than even his movies typically do. Uh, I was really... You know, this is up there with sort of Dollman and Kickboxer too, in Kickboxer 2 in terms of character work yeah. in his movies. Um, I was
1: thinking Dollman a lot while watching this. Yeah it, yeah,
2: it really, really vibes with Dollman. Absolutely. Mm.
1: Yeah. yeah, it's just, just the imagination on playing everything like that. But yeah, he's just really nailing down on the characters. And yeah, it's when you don't have money, you make the characters the thing. And that makes the movie memorable it makes it um it it makes it something that i yeah this it's one of my uh favorite Red howard pure performances actually um i think he's just so good in, in this just the way he's got this lightness to him and um because sort of yeah people love Red howard i'm like yeah because it's actually kind of things like a Doom why i love website i think he's a really great actor apart from all the other amazing things he's done
2: yeah, I, I, I've always preferred, um, like, funny, sarcastic, lighthearted Rucker Howard to intense Blade Runner Rucker Howard. Yeah. There's, there's a movie. Oh God, it came out probably right around this time called uh, cross worlds with Josh Charles, where Rucker Hauer plays this like mystical guru who has to teach Josh Charles, how to fight this multi-dimensional <laughs> villain. It's really entertaining. I mean, okay. I, again, I haven't seen it in years, but it's, it, I, I got to imagine if we're talking about how much we love an Albert Pune movie, hmm. it, it'll hold up, but he's such a like splinter from, not even splinter, but like just he's 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 totally doing the like asshole kung fu teacher, right? Just the yeah. sarcastic asshole, and he's delightful and he's wonderful. Um, I just I like liked uh may he rest in peace. I liked funny Rucker Howard. I I, I wish he had gotten to do that more in bigger budget movies, um, because he really did have this twinkle in his eye that was so fun when he, when he lit up, Uh, you know, even something like split second, he gets to, he gets to kind of cut loose and be, you know, funny in that uh, enough. But I just think because of how he came up with the, you know, the Paul Verhoeven movies and then Blade Runner
1: thinking that, yeah,
2: he was so expected to be that intense dour Rucker Hauer, especially in sort of big budget, you know, Hollywood work. Uh, and I, I think it was, a. I mean, it's not a miscalculation because he's brilliant in all of those too. But I, I think we missed out on some really terrific Rucker you know, lighthearted performances that we we could have seen in bigger movies.
1: Yeah, when you were talking, I was just thinking that. I'm like, oh no, because of like the Paul Verhoeven uh, Dutch work. And then Blade Runner, he got all the all the bigger movies. He was very serious and very dour and very menacing. And then when you watch the lower budget movies, you're like, oh, he's just having a good time. Like he's just having fun with it. And there is a twinkle in his eye in this movie. And he is playing it very serious on the surface. Um he, but he does have a but he is it's very light. Um and he's got that twinkle constantly. And it's like, yeah, yeah, this is this is blind fury, this is this is what I like. <laughs>
2: Yeah, somebody on Twitter told me when I was tweeting about this yesterday that apparently I did not know this story, but apparently um, Rutger, uh, when his time was up on the day, he would leave the set, regardless of whether they were mid-scene or not. He's just like, it's five o'clock, I'm out.
1: Yeah, drops his his tools and leaves. (laughs)
2: And, and on one hand, that kind of sounds like, oh, well, he's kind of a jerk. But on the other hand, it's like, no, I don't care how low budget your movie is. You don't donate your labor for free, yeah. right? You are getting paid to do a job. You should be getting paid to do the job. If the time's yes. up and the job's not done, th- that's that's not your responsibility. You go home. No, show up yes. the next day. Pick it up again. Yes. Yep.
1: No, I mean, it is. It's, it's a really good work ethic, actually, because you are a professional. You are getting paid. And probably for this movie, he that's where the money went on this movie. was Rutger Hauer. And um, yeah, and, it, and it's the end of the day. It's the end of the day. I'm, that is an amazing work ethic.
2: Yep, Rutger Hauer, uh, uh, labor leader. Who knew? Yes, exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I mean, this movie, again, surprised me. I don't know why I keep thinking it's going to be one thing and then I watch it and it's completely another because uh, Albert Pugh was a really great, director and again no one saw the world like he did and now yes as you said not all of his movies work but except for maybe Sergio Leone not everyone's movies work um, though I still haven't seen Colossal of Rhodes yet of, uh, so I don't know if all of his movies work but yeah Albert Pugh was just yeah You, as you said before uh, we kind of realized a little too late what we had
2: yeah yeah well it again because it, it... When you're watching these movies in the 90s, you know, and, and again, you're like me, you're going to the video store, you're watching them on HBO or Cinemax uh-huh. or Showtime or whatever your cable channel of choices. You know, there's a new one every other day you're getting, you know, Yalal Mary movies and Billy Blank's movies and Albert Pune movies and, and, you know, PM entertainment movies. And they're all just there's just this flood. And you don't really realize how special some of them are because you look at. You look at like a, you know, something like uh, undefeatable, the Cynthia Rothrock or uh, unbeatable, you know, which I love Cynthia Rothrock. I do not agree with the reevaluation that has happened to that movie. I still think it's pretty bad, (laughs) you know, and and then you look at something like Omega Doom and ostensibly they look very similar. They look low budget, Mm. mediocre acting, stuff like that. And so it's hard to separate. When you're in the middle of it, what it is that actually sets Albert Pune apart. But now that we're so far removed from it, we really can see that there he there was only one Albert. There, there's never been a director like him and there never will be a director like him. And and I think it, it is unfortunate that we were so late to realize it. But, um, you know, uh, at least people are realizing it now. And it, it always pleases me, it makes me so happy when I see younger people younger than you and I discovering Albert Pune and realizing, you know, my friend Brandon Streisnig, who has just become one of the biggest Albert Pune champions on the internet, wrote a big article for for Vulture about, you know, during the Vulture Stunt Awards about Pune. Yeah. And um, you know, and Brandon's <clears throat> 15 years younger than me and, and just re- literally just discovered Pune a couple of years ago. Uh but that's so heartening to see that 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 I think now people can appreciate him because so many of our movies do look the same you know yeah we talked a little bit about you know dial of destiny it's a fine movie it's good it's competent it's well done but there's nothing about it that for me at least was particularly visually interesting or stimulating nor as, as opposed to omega doom which is a fucking one location dollar 50 movie and is packed to the gills with visually there's something visually interesting happening in every frame of that movie uh and that's that's what i think we we've really lost uh when we don't have people like albert Pean anymore
1: yeah every scene has an idea in it which i really love like he's always you can tell he's always okay what is what is what am i trying to do with this thing here and yeah, the movie cost a dollar fifty, and he's able to do that. And yeah, as I keep saying, no one has his imagination. And yeah, people discovered we all discovered him a little too well. From I'm speaking for myself, a little bit too late. But um, these movies kind of need to marinate a little bit. It's like um, going to a much bigger director, but a lot, a lot of the time with Wes Craven's underseen work, it t- took time for them to everyone to catch on. And to kind of re-evaluate the things that weren't Scream or the first Nightmare on Elm Street. Or even sometimes like John Carpenter, those kind of guys. Uh, Toby Hoop is probably actually the best example of of that. Um, It sometimes just takes a little bit to marinate and actually put it into context. Like you were saying before that, oh, this doesn't look like everything else. This actually has its own style. And the way, yeah, bigger film budgets are sort of working is that everything does tend to look the same. I mean yes, I can find things to like in Dialog Destiny, but it's not how it looks. Um is if it maybe one or two visual gags toward the end. Um, or just the idea of what they were trying to do, but visually it's not my favorite movie of the end. No,
2: no and, no. and that's you know, and Toby, Toby's actually the perfect example because yeah. Craven, Craven never he never really didn't work in the studio system, yes. right? You know, I mean, he was always constantly working in Hollywood. Toby, yeah. very much by the end of Toby's career, he was making Albert Pune level movies. He was, uh, yes. And, and very much like Albert Pune was bringing a sense of style and, and vision to Two movies that that have no business looking and and feeling and being like they are. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not like our friend Patrick Bromley. I I am not a diehard Toby Hooper cool. fan, but even I can look at some of his later work and still go well yeah it's still fucking toby hooper though i mean yes. like the, there's there's a, there's a color composition and a shot blocking going on here that you just don't see in movies of this budget from people who aren't talented and it's the same thing with with peon there's so much you know you look at the way just even down to something as basic as why do the roms blackheart and, and zinc and Ironface? Mm why do they look like rejects from the matrix two years before the matrix? Well, because it looks fucking cool. Right. And it, it immediately makes them visually striking. And it also separates them very quickly from the droids who look like they're from Knights, right. You know, they're, they're very much the Mad Max. We're put together from pieces of clothing and stuff that we found. uh, and, And, you know, and so we're kind of this hodgepodge and then you've got, Blackheart and her people who are just these sleek, smooth, you know, elegant looking cyborgs and it both works because it's cool as hell, but it also serves a narrative purpose. It helps us differentiate very quickly who our two sides are uh, and, and doing it in a way that, you know fistful of dollars relied on on sort of the racial boundary you got the rojos and the baxters the whites and you know the whites and the mexicans here we're not you don't have that so you got to come up with some other way to keep these sides separate and it works but it also looks cool as fucking hell you know it's it's,
1: even that final fight between ronka and tina Coté kind of has a matrix feel about it because they're continuously flying at each other (laughs) just like that's two years before the matrix came out And it looks freaking cool.
2: (laughs) Well, and I love I love that it's, you know, it's very clearly because they didn't have the budget to do anything resembling a real fight. I mean, there's one little hand-to-hand bit where it's it's backlit, so it's pretty clear that it's not Rucker Howard doing the fighting, you know, but but all the flying around stuff, the way Pune shoots it, he shoots it in a way that he doesn't have to show anything. Yes. But it doesn't matter because you still You get it. You get what's happening here. You get how quickly, you know, how fast Rutger Hauer is, because that's the whole point is he's faster than everybody else. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you get all of this in such an interesting way uh, that he could do for two bucks, Um, you know, and, and that's and then you get two years, three years later, you get the Matrix. And, you know, they show us that on a grand scale, which is amazing. I love the Matrix, but it is funny that it's like, yeah, but Pune was doing this like two, three, five years ago, you know, Nemesis yeah. came out in 94. Like he was, he, he got there first. He just never had the resources or the budget to make something like the Matrix.
1: No. And he could have, if you, Oh my God. If you'd given Matrix money to Pune, Oh my God. I'm just trying to make, think of the insanity. He would have done.
2: I was going to say it, it would have either been the most amazing movie of all time. Or, the or absolutely the most unwatchable <laughs> vanity project piece of shit that has ever been, sub- because I do think a lot of Pune's talent, a lot of what makes him so good was the necessity of the budgets that he was working with.
1: Yes. If uh, you gave that man money, I'm like, Oh, how, what would have, Oh, this might not, have it would have looked,
2: it, it would have looked beautiful. I will yes. give you this. It would have been a visually stunning work of art. Yeah. Narratively, it might not made a, a lick of sense. Uh, it, it might have been it might have had like, you know, uh Alejandro Hodorowski going, Man, I don't even know what the fuck this movie's about. Like no. it would have it would have not made a lick of sense, but it would have oh, looked pretty.
1: Oh no, I, I still can't tell you what the nemesis movies are about. I know time travel is involved, I think, at least in the second one, but I still can't tell you I love those movies. I still can't I still can't tell you fully tell you what Dull Man is about. I know I love that movie. So yeah. The actual sometimes narrative thing of Albert Pugh didn't always go together,
2: strength wise. The the thing you really have to realize about the nemesis, his cyborg nemesis universe, is he does not, he is of the opinion that that robots and cyborgs do not age like humans. And so he's telling these stories on a much more epic time scale Hmm. than what we're used to. I think that's why a lot of people get. You know, they're kind of like, well, how is this happening with this? And it's like, well, there might be 5,000 years between Nemesis and Omega Doom. Mm. You know, we we don't know how much time is actually passing between all these movies. And so once you kind of and this is this is straight up, you know, uh, headcanon on my part. I've read nothing. But but once I kind of thought about that, I was like, okay, well, I, I can kind of let some of these narrative weirdnesses, like why. Why does Alex go from Olivier Grunier to Sue Price? And why does does Sue Price's Alex go from sort of this Conan barbarian woman to a... Killer prostitute and nemesis for well, I don't know. Maybe there's like three thousand years in between hmm. those two movies. A lot of shit can happen in three thousand yes. years, you A know. Lot like, of, yes,
0: <laughs> you
2: can undergo some changes. I'm just saying you probably are not going to be the same person after three thousand years. And that that sort of helped me. Just okay, I'm just going to go with it. You know, I'm not going to get too hung up on this stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's just one of those things. When, with with uh, Italian movies, I like. I can't tell you the plot but I know I, I remember shot compositions and I remember tone and vibe and that is Albert Pugh to to a T. Um, anything else you want to say about a Doom before we move on?
2: No, I don't think so. I think, uh, I think we've, we've pretty much, I mean, we don't want to spend longer talking about the movie than the movie lasts. So um, <laughs> sure. I, I think, I think we're pretty good on this one. I think we can, and I have a feeling, you know, we, we should justifiably spend longer talking about the Leone movie than we do talking about the Albert Pugh movie. Yeah.
1: And with that, we're going get, to get into a movie that might have changed the course of film history, filmmaking. I don't know. When Suja Leone came out with a little movie called Fistful of Dollars, things changed. And as I like to imagine, curtains are opening. Mike, what is going to be your trailer for Fistful
2: of Dollars? So this one, I'm <clears throat> I'm not going with a direct adaptation of Red Harvest, but I <clears throat> am going with a movie that is heavily influenced the filmmakers uh stated that red harvest was a big influence as well lo- as well as hammett's other novel the glass key <clears throat> so i am gonna go with uh the coen brothers miller's crossing
0: you shouldn't be confronting jenny casper that's what i've been trying to tell you i can still trade body blows with any man in this town except you Tom. and verna verna is she leo's girl what did you tell Leo? Told him you were a tramp and he should dump you. I want everybody to be friends. You, me, Leo, the Dane. You know who I am? The Dane. Has he got it figured? You dumping Leo for the guy who put a bullet in your brother? Bernie. Will he turn the tables? Don't smart me.
2: I want to watch you squirm. I want to see you sweat a little. All you got to do to show you're a friend is give me Bernie Bum. Burn, burn.
0: Tommy, you can't do
2: this. You don't
0: bump, guys. It's not right, Tom. I can't, though. Two of us have faced worse odds. Never without reason. I thought you said you didn't care about Leo. Uh,
1: now, I think, yeah, I, oh, my God, I love this movie. This might be top Coen Brothers for me now. It's It's grown
2: it is it is for sure my favorite coen brothers movie um it's it's not even really a, a competition for me i i think this one is they've got a lot of really good movies this one i feel like gets slept on quite a bit uh i think this is such a masterful gangster film noir revenge movie um i again sacrilege but it's not me if i don't have a hot take I think this is the better 1990 gangster movie than Goodfellas. <laughs> I know that's uh, it's like a horrible thing to say, but I think this is as close to perfect as movies get. Um, it, no, but and... the thing
1: is, it kind of is. I am always just going to have nostalgia for Goodfellas, um, just because I watched it way too, way too young. Um, but Millers Crossing is kind of a perfect movie. I mean, that opening with um, uh, John uh, Peloto is kind of one of the greatest things in cinema. And we're not even just talking about the Albert Finney badass, just killing everyone in the house and sliding off a roof. Um, I mean, John Turturro's whole performance. I mean, not even getting into Gabriel Burns. I mean, it's, yeah, it is kind of perfect. I mean, that score is one of the, um, what's his name's most beautiful scores he's done. Carter Burwell. It, it's yeah, it's an absolutely Burwell.
2: stunning score. Yeah. It, and it's the one too. You know, we talked about with we talked about Last Man Standing about how a lot of Hammett adaptations lack the meanness, the edge that his writing had. And this one, maybe more than any other movie, has that Hammett edge. I mean, Gabriel Byrne is so cold-hearted in this movie, and so singularly focused on his task uh, that it is just a. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not, you know, I mean, for me, it's a fun watch. I think it's, I think it's an absolutely just delightful watch, but it, it's, it's a mean, nasty little movie. Um, But I just think, I think the Coen's, you know, there's always this sort of divide. Do you like the Coen's comedies or do you like their crime stuff? And and I'm definitely much more on the, the crime stuff side of things for them. But I, you know, so much of their, Praise comes for things like No Country for Old Men, which is a brilliant movie. But I just always feel like this one gets left out of that conversation. And this to me is is as good of a movie as they ever made. Uh, and I just I, I think it's probably as good of a movie as they will ever make. Uh, there, there's so much about this movie that is is just outstanding to me. And, and it's when they were still really young, you know. I think that might be part of it. I'm not sure they could make this movie because this is one of those movies. Where we kind of talked about, we talked about speaking of, you know, Cohen Brothers' friends, we kind of talked about this when we talked about Sam Raimi and Mm
0: -hmm.
2: how the verve that these guys have when they're young, these movies happen because they're too dumb to know they shouldn't be able to make a movie like this. Martin Scorsese knew he could make Goodfellas. By that point, he had made so many brilliant movies. He knew he could make a movie as good as Goodfellas the Coen's had no business making a movie as good as Miller's Crossing. I I think I think they were they were too dumb and young to realize that this is not a movie that 30 year olds make. Um, And it's all the better for it because there's an energy and a vibrancy to this. Uh, You know, if you read the plot. It feels, you know, it feels like kind of a staid gangster drama, but there is so so much verve and energy in this thing. It just the the hour and fifty five minutes just absolutely flies by. Uh, every scene just cackles, you know, just crackles with with energy, and and every performance just crackles with energy. That it's it's that it's that energy of youth that I like so much from young up um, and coming filmmakers. And this one, man, they just they knock this one out of the park.
1: They really did. I mean, Time Scorsese made Goodfellas. He, it, that movie feels like a movie he made with his eyes closed a little bit because he knew exactly how to do it. I mean, this. I mean, Goodfellas was his comeback from memory because the 80s was a bit of a, a weird time where the fact that Never Scorsese finds hard to get funding blows my mind, but he keeps wanting to make $200 million movies. And we will go see Kill, uh, The Killers of the Flower Moon because of, for that reason. Yeah, he, it felt very easy. I know it wasn't, but it just felt very easy. This one has the energy of two dumb kids, but also the thoughtfulness of two directors in their 60s that they are able to contemplate these big kind of things of loyalty um, and just everything that's going on in that movie. And yet there, there's a, as you said, there's a crackling energy of they should not be able to make a movie like this. And they've tried. And one of my other favorite ones is The Man Who Wasn't There, which is a movie I love, but it's them trying to get that Miller's energy thing, uh, Miller's Crossing energy back and they don't quite get it.
2: No, I agree. I love the man who wasn't there, but but it it doesn't have that's a movie made by people who have made things like No Country for Old Men. And, you know, and and True Grit, like that, that is a movie made by directors that have made great. They've made Fargo at that point. Right. They 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 know what they're capable Mm. of. And and that's that's where I think you just you just have something going on in this one. Blood Simple is the same way, you know, but it's a much smaller scale, uh, where they just they don't know what they don't know. And mm. that makes them better filmmakers.
1: Exactly. And they took everything they did from Miller's Crossing and to make absolute masterpieces. But Miller's Crossing is oh I gotta that movie was like a slap in the face the first time I saw it. I was like I mean, I understand there's a lot of Conan movies to talk about, but really, no one's talking about *Middle's Crossing*. What the hell? That it's, like it, it felt like it came out of nowhere.
2: Yeah, it's so weird to me that, that it 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 doesn't seem to get uh, talked about more, and, and that it doesn't seem to get talked about in like their upper echelon. You know, when you see rankings, it, it very rarely ranks near the top, and it just to me it, it's just mind blowing because the other movies. That rank higher, I think, like No Country for Old Men, I think are in a lot of ways derivative, not derivative in a negative way, but but subservient, I guess, to what they did in Miller's Crossing. They they are, we don't get No Country for Old Men without Miller's Crossing. No, uh, and and I just don't think they've ever recaptured that 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 energy um It just it, they they haven't recaptured it. They've made a lot of brilliant goddamn movies. This is not shade on the mm. rest of the cohen Brothers' filmography, nor is it. I want it to be clear. Nor am I throwing shade on Goodfellas. I'm trying to just explain why of the two big gangster movies that came out in 1990, Miller's Crossing is is my preferred. I mean, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. I, I think it's just an absolutely stunning piece of filmmaking.
1: It it really is. I mean, this is still Barry Sonnenfeld shooting for them. They are still kind of playing around with the tools. There's, I mean, some of the Zoom shots Barry's playing with is kind of bonkers. I mean, it's still got that energy, but it's such a kind of, I mean, that carnival kind of score gives it such a soul um, that that kind of movie shouldn't have. Um, there's too many weird pieces that fit together in the perfect way, unlike Goodfellas, which is just perfect, 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 because Scorsese is a master directed by that stage. So, um, yeah, and, and I completely get what you're saying.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's you know you really hit the nail. It's the same thing that that you know I go to again going back to Ramey that that it's the a perfect a perfect a brilliant director making a perfect movie something like Lawrence of Arabia is is amazing and I I think that's a brilliant movie but there's something for me about those movies safe isn't the right word but like you said meticulously A little too meticulously plotted, a little too meticulously planned, a little too perfect. There needs to be a little bit more messiness in the corners. That's actually why when it comes to Scorsese, I actually prefer Casino because I think Casino's messy as shit. And I think it's a lot more entertaining for me because of it, because it's not as perfect as Goodfellas. And that's the same thing with Miller's. It's a perfect movie, but it's perfect because of its youthful messiness.
1: Yes, that is a perfect example of Casino, which I have warmed up to again in recent years because it is messy as all hell. Like, I just like going, yes, give me the mess. Uh, For my trailer, I, and my trailers are kind of in a theme. They're not necessarily the Red Harvest, especially with the two sort of gangs kind of buying each other and everyone caught in the middle. I'm kind of going for more of a, um, I'll just say my first trailer, but I am going to go for another uh, Clint Eastwood movie, but one of his, with another one of his favorite directors that you can tell influenced him as much as Leone did. But I'm going to go Escape from Alcatraz, from 1979, the great Don Siegel.
2: Some men are destined never to leave Alcatraz.
0: Alive. This island is solid rock. Uh, No one's ever busted out. No one's ever made it. Since I've been warden, a few people have tried to escape. Uh, Most of them have been recaptured. Those that haven't have been killed. I may have found a way out of here. No one has ever escaped from Alcatraz. i in. Me too. And no one ever will. There are 12 counts every day. Come on, hold it. One long count. We count the hours. Tuesday night we go. Shake down. The bulls count us, and the king bulls count the counts. No one has ever escaped from Alcatraz.
1: Again, a, mo- a guy who knew how to make a goddamn shot um I really love this movie I don't think it's perfect um and I think it's very of its time and the trailer makes it look like it's going to be a prison comedy for some weird reason when it's really not that it's like um this movie breaks people like it's the way men are shattered by their experience at Alcatraz really sort of shows through and the horribleness of these people um again Clint Eastwood's playing a very silent man who's always watching, waiting for his time, and he's going to kind of, I guess, screw the authorities and just get out of Alcatraz. And it's just, it's just a really good movie. It's just, it's kind of a hard movie to explain because there's actually so much silence because Alcatraz did have a policy where no one could talk. So it kind of plays with that silence in these amazing ways.
2: I actually, believe it or not, have not seen this one. So uh, I need to add it to the list. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't see them all, Linz, you know. I try, but (laughs) I can't see them all. No, but I have not seen this one. I remember, you know, I think it's got one of the most... Striking posters. I I remember the poster, like the VHS box hmm. art from when I was a kid, because it's you know it's Eastwood digging through the little triangle shaped cutout in the wall, and it's it's an incredibly striking poster. But I've never actually watched the movie, uh, and so I need to get off my ass and do that.
1: No, I went through a Don Siegel kick at the beginning of this year, and um, watched a lot of the Dirty Harry movies, and it just went was was where Don Siegel Clint Eastwood kick just the way it's sort of constructed it's not the movie you think it's going to be because you think it's going to be maybe a little bit like the great escape but it's much more somber it's much more sad it's very long and again it's kind of a movie where clint eastwood doesn't speak a lot like he does in a lot of his leone movies which we will get into very soon but it is oh my god Don siegel oh holy hell it was just again kind of that walter hill um uh kind of um another director who I'm going to pick for my next one, kind of this weird kind of masculinity that was always questioning masculinity, which is why I think the first Eddie Harry movie is so good in terms of, even though, yes, there's a whole lot of fascist kind of stuff going on in that movie, but at the same time, it's kind of questioning it a little bit, kind of, just in the way Seagull films, which is why um, Invasion for the Body Snatchers is so great. But no, if you get a chance, definitely see this movie. I was kind of blown away by it.
2: Yeah, no, I definitely need to check it out. And I, I've always thought that was an unfair criticism of of a lot of Don Siegel stuff. You know, mm. I think a lot of times it's just, you know, his well-known personal politics kind yeah. of leading the criticism of him, because I, I think the criticisms that people levy at Dirty Harry are, they're talking about the sequels, yes. not necessarily the original movie i mean people forget the original dirty harry ends with harry throwing his badge in the lake because he knows he's crossed the line he feels justified in having done it but he knows that the system doesn't have a place for him it's very much john wayne walking away at the end of the searchers right the world doesn't have a place for harry anymore and this isn't exactly he's not romanticized for that uh you know it's just the idea being that You know, and even the second even the second Dirty Harry, which is, I think, what, Magnum Force, uh, where, you know, the the villains are corrupt cops. I mean, you know, I think it's I think people conflate what as often happens with a lot of movies like this. I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here, but they conflate the movies that came in the wake of Dirty Harry, your your death wishes and your even more like exploitation driven ones with. The actual original movie that kicked it off because i just don't i don't see maybe i'm blind i don't know but i don't see the fascist tendencies in in the original dirty harry um i see maybe lamenting for a world that used to be simpler uh but again that's kind of the plot of the movie this new modern world also births somebody like the scorpio killer you know and so it's it's neither Harry nor the Scorpion, you know, these people don't belong in this world anymore. Um, yeah, anyway, no, there's yeah. my tangent.
1: No, that I think that's a correct thing with with the Dirty Harry is that it does, that's why I think that a lot of people do complain it. And yes, Dirty Harry is that kind of character, but in the first movie, he's aware that he doesn't belong in the world. And he also knows that Scorpion doesn't belong in the world. And the, it's the filmmaking that kind of shows that not necessarily everything that Dirty Harry is saying, which is why I think it's kind of, just because both Clint and Siegel were just a little bit more more conservative and they are lamenting the good old days. But at the same time, it's like, how do we deal with this world I, I, that I don't understand? And I do find scary. And this, no one shoots San Francisco like Dirty Harry. Oh, heck. But um And Alcatraz does have those kind of same ideas of not knowing how to be in this kind of, new hollywood world and um it done just very simply very beautifully and playing with these ideas of masculinity of how you're meant to be versus the reality of it like you're not you can't be with your family you're being um sometimes justly punished sometimes unjustly punished um but it's all in the same suit um no but that is going to be my first trailer what is going to be your second trailer
2: uh first of all yeah you completely sold me on the movie um I'm going I'm going a bit weird for my second trailer. I'm going uh, I'm going for a trailer that that is, again, heavily influenced by Red Harvest uh, back in back in the Western uh, genre, but by a certified madman who made this in the most certifiably madman way possible. So I am going to go with uh, the trailer for the 2007 Takeshi Miki directed Tsukiyaki Western Django which is a bananas movie if you have not seen it on a distant island these two clans split into the reds and the whites wage war
0: their story goes a little something like this
2: Not too shabby. Hideaki Ito, Yusuke Iseya, Kaori Mamoi,
0: Yoshino Kimura, and Quentin Tarantino. Life is all about goodbyes. Takashi Miike's English language masterpiece.
1: I have not seen it yet. You have told me about it and it's on my radar. I haven't got a chance because I was thinking of Django, the original, but a particular scene that happens in this as well. I mean, if you're going to have a Gatling gun. (laughs) let's all go tango um i still need to see this because this sounds absolutely off the
0: wall
2: you know i mean the story itself is is pretty straightforward it's very much red harvest a gunslinger rides into this town there's two warring clans he's got ulterior motives ends up pitting the two clans against one another it blows up in his face um but one of the things that i just don't I mean, I know Mickey's explained why he did it, and it still is just the kind of mad thing that only he would do (laughs) is it's shot in English, but more than half the cast didn't speak English. So they deliver all their lines phonetically. And so you have. All the dialogue is this really like almost has this like ethereal other world sound. It's all sing-songy and and the emphasis is are on the wrong syllables and and stuff like that. And so it, it's just it's this very weird, almost kabuki theater kind of delivery. Oh, nice on on these lines. Um in the set is the same. You know, it's it's a very Unrealistic reality that he that he shoots it in. Um, it's not on sound stages, it's on a location. They built a you know, shot yeah. it in a western set, but the way he shoots it, everything has this sort of slightly fake look to it. And there's there's a, a framing device with Quentin Tarantino, actually, who just is fucking terrible in it. He's absolutely awful <laughs> in it. But that's actually shot on a sound stage to to kind of introduce us immediately that this movie is not a realistic movie this is a a poem this is a, a piece of art um it's bananas but it's also Mickey, which means it's got incredible action scenes and just absolutely tremendous shootouts it has a gatling gun uh it has it has just some stunning fights um one the the last fight this isn't really a spoiler because i'm not saying who it's between but One guy's got a sword. The other guy's got a gun. The guy with the sword is actually slicing the bullets in midair is the guy with the guns trying to shoot at him like just really cool action stuff in it. So it's uh, I I really recommend if people want to check it out, uh, you know, watch the trailer because it'll it'll sell you. But I do recommend the MVD release. The Blu-ray release is the uh, two hour running time. Uh, That's the version that I recommend to check out. It is uh, a lot flabbier than the, the 98 minute version uh, that was kind of released in North America. Um, but the 98 minute version doesn't make a lick of sense. So you kind of need the, the, the the two hour version is admittedly more, more boring. It's a little more slow going. Mm. It at least makes sense. Whereas the 98 minute version, you watch it and you're just like, you want to talk about vibes, that's all you got because it doesn't make a goddamn bit of sense. Uh, yes. So, you know, try and seek out the two-hour version first.
1: Yes, uh, especially when, uh, speaking of a director who only, only that director can see the world in this way, that is Takashi Pachimiki. Every single time I watch one of his movies, even one of his goofy comedies, I'm like, oh, only he could have made this. I can't imagine anyone else doing it in the way that that he does. Um, so, yeah, I do need to get on to see this movie because it does sound insane. <laughs>
2: Yeah. And I mean, it's again, at its core, it is a straight, I mean, it is a bog standard, straightforward Western, but through his eyes, it becomes something very, very different.
1: Exactly. Yeah. That's why I need to say that's going to be an absolutely amazing, amazing uh, trailer. For my second trailer, I am going to go for another uh, director who does have a similar muscular nature to say a Walter Hill or a Don Siegel. As uh, I, I just said, I had a theme. But I'm going to go for John Sowell's Madawan from 1987.
0: Hit were 19 and 20 in the southwest field and things was tough. The miners was trying to bring a union to West Virginia, and the coal operators and their gun thugs are set on keeping them out. Them was hard people, your coal miners. Then they wasn't nobody who wanted to cross. So push come to shove, and pretty soon we had us a war down there in Mango County, which in them days was known as Bloody Mango. And that's where it all come to a head there on Tug Fork in the town of Matewan.
1: No! I don't know if this is his first directed movie, but it's very early on. Um, In fact, it's Chris Cooper's first movie and fucking hell he knocks it out of the park. This is based on, because Red Harvest is loosely based on a strike slash war in a mine in the 1920s, which I've got a sneaking suspicion was happening all around uh, America in the 1920s of uh, labor unions and everything like that. But this is the miners have gone on strike in 1919, 1920 in a uh, West Virginia town that led slow's home uh, of one And they brought in a whole bunch of African-Americans, uh, one of them played by J- the great James L. Jones, to go over the picket line. And you also have Chris Cooper, who is a unionist, going in to try and organize them. And it ends in all-in-out conflict. Like, it's it's a it's a battleground. It is, again, got that Western feeling because it's set in West Virginia. But if you haven't seen this, see... Uh, seek it out um I was I only saw it a couple of days ago um and I was blown away it's got a bit of a last man standing like it's really mean they're not even he's not even trying to see it's like the corporations have an army to keep their staff in line I mean they are the worst and it is definitely a unionist movie but it is yeah it is
0: so good
2: yeah, no, it's it's been years since I've seen it, but it's it's terrific. It, it was not his first movie, but you're right; it's very yeah. very early uh, in his career. Um, but it it it's just, I mean, John Sayles is just uh, never really missed. Yeah, uh, know, he doesn't he doesn't direct very much anymore, which is just sad. Mm. But uh, but yeah, it's 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 tremendous. I think it's a great great trailer to to play along with it
1: there are definitely you can see i mean when we get into leone the sides get very blurred but you can kind of as we sort of said um clindy a son of a bitch until he's not a son of a bitch and this is kind of these characters they are hard bitten they have nothing to lose um but they have nothing to gain what they're fighting for is so small and it's yeah john sales doesn't mess he's one of the great directors again a director i wish he got talked to what are the great american directors who i think should get talked about more yes he wrote some of the best genre movies ever. He also, made some of the best dramas in America. So, and I think Metal One is one of them. So, yeah, please check it out if you can. And, um, great trailer as well. It's not the trailer I was thinking with, um, Adam Risky doing is, it was a time, it was a place. James Earl Jones. Like, it's not that at all. It's actually a really amazing trailer.
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't remember the trailer at all, but, uh, but I, I definitely concur on the movie. The movie's yeah. brilliant.
1: No, it feels like it's, uh, out of a Ken Burns documentary. It's really great. <laughs> yeah. And with that, we're going to get into a movie that, yeah, I think it was probably one of the most influential movies ever made. I mean, the, Sergio Leone took something, credits Kurosawa, maybe he should be credi- crediting it, uh, Dashiell Hammond, but he didn't, made a movie that kind of exploded. Um, and that is A Fistful of Dollars.
0: Doing a little killing you will have no trouble finding someone eager to pay you. Well, I might just be available. Get three coffins ready. Listen, stranger, we don't like to see bad boys like you in town. <laughs> <laughs>
1: when did you first come across um assuming you came across leone before kurosawa or was it the other way around
2: no it was it was leone first because i was uh i was when i was a kid i was a big Clint Eastwood guy. Mm. I was a big dirty Harry fan. Um, and so I think I probably watched the good, the bad, and the ugly first. Mm. Um, but I mean, this is one of those movies, to be honest. I couldn't tell you when I first saw it. It feels like it's been a part of my life, my entire life. You know, it's yeah. just Leone's just always kind of just been there. He's just always yeah. been one of those, one of those directors for me
1: yeah same like i can't remember the first time i saw it because my dad was a huge clint eastwood guy and loved these movies so these kind of all three of the um a man with no name all kind of blurred into one for me so it's so it's it's gonna be interesting to go back and watch all these movies to kind of pull them apart a little bit and kind of see them individually but yeah this kind of this movie this kind of movie making just felt like it always had been there. So when you kind of look back and go, oh, this was the first Spaghetti Western, you're like, wait, what, really? Oh, okay. This is actually where it started. It wasn't like three movies and then this, apparently this was it.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it, it's, again, it's, you know, to, to kind of stick with the theme, uh, it, it's, it's a director that's too dumb to not realize what he can't do, you yeah. know? Uh, he, he doesn't realize which again sounds like I'm I'm like insulting Leone. I'm not, yeah. but it's just I I think there was no way that Amer an American was ever going to make a Western like this. Because no. at this point, the Westerns had they had well worn tropes they had well-worn you know ways they were structured and ways they were supposed to be and even ones that kind of push out at the edges like the searchers you know are still ultimately falling into that kind of john ford style look mm. um it, it, i think it took somebody with coming from the outside to be able to look and go well i i don't have to shoot it that way though i can shoot it in a very different way, I can shoot it. I can focus more on close-ups. I can focus more on elongated, you know, takes and and stuff like that. And and so I think this just really does have a vibe of somebody that maybe you know, maybe I shouldn't say he didn't know what he couldn't get away with, but he he wasn't interested in following the formalism that had been established for westerns. No, he he wanted to do something different.
1: Yeah, I mean, Ford is definitely an influence on this, but it's not the only influence. I mean, Leone always loved the American West historical period, which is why he wanted to make this movie. But when you watch it and you realize, I mean, he'd been working in the film industry for quite a while. He directed officially one movie. I think he'd worked on bits and pieces as a director, half a director and a few others, mainly Sword and Sandals movies. And then he gets to make this. And just the confidence of just being able to rest on someone's face as long as he does feels like you said he's too dumb to realize he's too young and dumb or doesn't realize he can't get it he shouldn't be able to get away with that not in a western not in a movie in 1964 not in anything else like he doesn't he kind of has a basic grasp of the rules but he doesn't necessarily know how far he's breaking them like like you said and it's just astounding of, um, I mean, he's always wanted to make them operatic and he will go full operatic toward the end of his career or the end of his career. Um, but this, he's just starting it. I'm like, oh, you you don't have the classic Leonie Zoom yet, but you're holding on things much longer than anyone else would.
2: Yeah, it's actually interesting because as far as I can tell, they, they had... No interaction, no, no crossover whatsoever. But I, I find it fascinating that two of my favorite directors both started kind of developing their unique styles right around the same time. You got Leone in in Italy, and you've got Jean-Pierre Melville in France doing a lot of the same thing, doing yeah. a lot of those using those modern techniques, those modern styles of filmmaking, uh to really break away, you know, and obviously Melville's coming after the, the French new wave and, and yes. guys like Godard and that, but, but, you know, Melville had a distinct style that that was very different than a lot of those French filmmakers. And it, it actually is more in line with what Leone was doing. Um, and so it's, it's interesting to me that I just, I gravitate to both of those directors and I see a lot of similarities, even though it doesn't appear that they had any crossover. In fact, I think Melville might've even, I don't remember when Melville passed away, but it might've even been before A fistful of dollars came out. But there's just there's a lot of similarities between the two of them. And and it is, it's that that idea of we can linger on some of this stuff. We're going to linger on the violence. We're going to linger on the emotions. We're going to linger on the lack of emotion. You know, I I love there's a, there's a great, great quote from Leonie about Eastwood where he says, you know, I realized what I really needed was a mask because at that point Eastwood had uh, two faces hat on and hat off and, uh, (laughs) you know, and but it works on that because, because it allows us to, you know, where we talked so much about character in, in Omega doom Eastwood being almost a blank in this is a really good entry point for us into this world. You know, we know as little about him as everybody else in the movie does. And so for, you know, the first time you're watching the movie, you really don't know what his motives are. It it really is an interesting thing because there is no There, there. He's a cipher. He's a, you know, he, he doesn't really exist. And so that makes it interesting to see where he goes as a character and and why he keeps bouncing back and forth. And you're kind of like, okay, yeah, I, I cannot get a read on this guy to save my life.
1: Yeah, you're right. I mean, the fact, I mean, Clint Easton would become a much more accomplished actor later on or just being him on screen complaining about stuff. However you like, I mean, I'll goof on the man, but I can't stop watching him on screen um this one he is a cypher he doesn't actually and i think it actually works the fact that he might not have been as a stronger actor going into it but he has the look and he has this mask and just the way he has the hat the poncho cigarette yes i noticed the cigarette in um um omega doom i was like that, yeah, see, see what you did there um it all kind of works and it's all about the look it's not about any of the characterizations everyone's kind of because everyone lacks morality except for, say, the kid. Um, no one has a backbone. It's it, You kind of even have to put your own morality on the movie or you just have to accept the fact um, that it doesn't. Because I was reading some of the reviews from from the time when it came out, and they hated it. I mean, it kind of blew up in America a little bit, but in Italy, they were just like, there is no morals, this man, this movie is moralist, it's just violence, which the fact that Italy took just violence and ran with it for the next two decades is hilarious to me. Um, but... It, it was really just this kind of so wh- where is this moral center and the movie purposely does not have one except for when but eastwood saves um uh marianne coke's character um yeah. that's it and it's it almost feels like a split second decision like he's just decided oh i'm gonna do this because you don't know what he's doing at the beginning you just know he's just playing each off the each um, gang off each other to try and make money and it's when he does that you're like oh but you don't know. But you, I still don't know. Think I still don't necessarily know why he did it because you don't know anything about him.
2: Yeah, all you all you really get is a sense that that at a certain point he does have a line that he's unwilling to cross, and, mm. and what what uh, Ramon is doing to Marisol is you know that's 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 the line. Mm. Um, and, and but but you don't get anything more than that, right? You no. don't get. He doesn't have this big. He doesn't have this big revelation. He doesn't have this big heartbreaking statement about how he's turned his life around or anything. He just does this and then gets his ass kicked and almost killed and then goes back. And basically, I mean, he could have, he could have gone away. You know, he he yeah. essentially goes back because he's pissed off that these guys kicked his ass and he's going to fucking kill them all, Yeah, you know? And, and, and it's not because Marisol's free. Like he, you know, it's, I mean, I guess he's got to go back and, and rescue his friend. Yeah. You know, there's that part to it, but it, it's so much more about just, uh, I need to. This is not okay. Like you have, you have, uh, you have offended me, and you have offended the Shaolin Temple, and now I am going to kill you all. Um, <laughs> That's
1: pretty much it. There's nothing. Yeah. There's nothing really more um, deeper than that. It is just literally like I don't like you. It's like how I love about the Equalizer movies. The thing that sets Denzel off is because someone's being impolite to his sensibilities, and he's like, "Well, now, I mean, yeah, some of the they're, they're mainly assholes who need to get their ass kicked." Um, but it's usually like, no, you've offended me. You've offended the Sheldon Temple. I am now going to stick a gun in your eye because that is the right thing to do for me. It's there's nothing more to it, and I love it.
2: <laughs> well, and the the one bit of character that we do really get from him sets him up perfectly as far as that goes because you know the the whole opening kind of scene with him, where first he tells he tells uh, Pierpero, you know. Uh, get three coffins ready. Yes! And then and then you get, you know, you get the punchline later where he's like, my mistake, four coffins. coffins. But also the whole, I don't think it's funny you laughing. Now I'd be okay with it, but my mule, well, she just doesn't understand. You know, and, and so we'd really do establish very quickly that, yes, he's doing this to show off that he is capable you know that that he is a he is a a gun that should be hired but it also does establish that he's probably not someone to be fucked with and whether it's his mule it, it helps us establish very quickly that there are some things that he might possibly care about more than just money uh and, and so it doesn't completely come out of the blue when he rescues marisol and her mm. family but it also isn't it isn't telegraphed it isn't focused on it's just kind of okay i guess i guess this is again yeah like i said this is a line they crossed and he's not okay with that
1: yeah it's um i mean the movie sets it up the whole marisol thing perfectly when you first see him i'm like god leone and opening credits are just like this the man got it like that amazing Miracone score that's now iconic you've got the horse racing and then he's then it switches to the horse racing through um the landscape i'm just like oh Dear Chris Leone. Um, and then you see the little boy sneak to the other house, and then these guys just coming out shooting at him, and he's crying, and you don't know why this is happening. You see, you kind of get the hint because this woman does come out to have a look. Um, but you don't necessarily know the full story until the back half of the movie. Like you've almost forgotten about that because you're being sort of focused on um, Clint Eastwood saying, "Build me three coffins. Oh, my mistake. We should have been four Uh, which is one of the most badass lines ever to be just put on screen. Um, And, but then you don't sort of get it until, oh, that kid misses his mother and she's been taken away because Ramon is just the worst. So yeah, so you've got these kind of uh, sort of plays going on, but they're all kind of in the background. And Leone is so good at this moment. He knows what to make you focus on and he knows to set up things for you to remember back later. Like it's really... For as simple as the story is and for how non-complex the emotions are in it this movie is so goddamn well constructed like it's just oh he knows what he's doing like he already had this thing in his head and now he's put it on screen and it's just working exactly how it should
2: yeah you know and it's almost i forgot you know the the whole point of this is not just that Ramon is is keeping Marisol, but you know he framed her husband for being a card cheat. So there yes. is a, that little thing there too. You know that this is a character where you can almost see it's like, well, you can do a lot, but you d- you don't you don't frame a man, you know, for cheating yes. cards. Like that's, uh, you know, because I mean, Jesus, he just lets people get slaughtered left and right oh. in this movie and does nothing about it. And so it's just it's interesting. It is again, it's it's a great. Again, I don't want to call him necessarily character, but it, it's a great archetype because he just lets people get slaughtered left and right. But this is the the one thing, you know, that he just he has to do something about.
1: Yeah, it's exactly it. I mean, even the wife of these other family, um, the like she they actually kind of have a rapport with each other. They kind of have an understanding. Like you've kind of those conversations that you have, they do understand each other. And when she dies, nothing. Like it's not even it's like, oh, oh well, like, who cares? Um and even the fact that he goes back for uh, the bartender, Jose Calvo, it's more the fact that it's like, oh, God, these have got their muscles. They beat me up. They're trying to do him. I've just got to go and end this. It's not necessarily an attachment to him per se, even though he does save him. It's more of a, yeah, you've offended me, so you're going to die. It is, um, that's kind of what it is. And it's an archetype but it's kind of almost the perfect movie character, which is why we keep seeing this character keep coming up even to this day. I mean, I've mentioned Equalizer. Denzel's kind of that character. I mean, we know more about him in in the movies, and he's more of a fleshed-out character, but he still has that man with no name um, archetype. He comes in, he sorts something out, and then he finishes his adventure. And then that's why we're getting the third Equalizer.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, mean, this really does just establish... Because one of the big differences between Yojimbo and this one is Yojimbo is actually a character. You know, and in fact, Kurosawa made a sequel to Yojimbo. Yes. Like Toshiro Mofune is incapable of being a blank cipher, right? Toshiro Mofune, just by his very nature, is character. He yes. is memorable. He brings a depth that 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 there's no way you can stamp that out. So I think that's what's interesting is I don't really think that Yojimbo necessarily especially here in the West set the template for an action the stoic action hero the way that that Eastwood does with the man with no name because I mean you look at something like Mad Max Road Warrior Max is very much more like the man with no name than he oh, is Yojimbo. Yes. Um and, and so you know you've got this long history post 1965 of these these movies that um rely on this archetype and we go back to it again and again because much like we keep going back to red harvest as a plot the man with no name the stoic stranger who doesn't want to get involved but can't not is such a fucking effective and functional way to tell a story like it It, just immediately buys in you know
1: it really really is i mean the famous story which is always one of my favorite movie um kind of anecdotes is that uh, after this movie, and it was starting to get kind of caught on and people were seeing it, he got a telegram from Kurosawa saying, I saw your movie. It's a very fine movie, but it's my movie. And proceeded to sue him for copyright. Um, but I still, yeah, you're right. There are differences. Yes, the basic story structures are definitely there. And you can tell that even with the way you shoot, the man loves Kurosawa. But Kurosawa is also one of those directors who's also just influenced everything about modern movies. Like those two, these two are just kind of like, spread their little fingers and now we just have like how Leoni shoots how kurosawa shoots and it's just kind of just this mingle of of, of the two of them um but no Yojimbo is a fully formed character because you're right because mifune is was an amazing actor and just exuded personality so he's going to be a fully fledged character even i just watched the bodyguard uh from 92 with kevin costner and the, they established his character has seen yujimbo like 62 times like you love that's the only movie i think he's ever seen this character and but the way he acts is still more clint eastwood <laughs> like it kind of yeah because it's made not necessarily an easy thing to do but it's just more effective for a much more streamlined story kind of um telling and i was just sort of watching it going yeah but you're still doing more clint eastwood than you are doing the fune and because well no one can imitate the because he is the original original like there's no he's there's only one Tamisha Mafune, and he is
0: it
2: yeah no I actually think Franco Nero's performance in Django is probably a little closer to Yojimbo than uh, than what Clint Eastwood's trying yes. to do here. Yes. You know, because Nero Nero has that same passion that that it's really that. It's it's the thing with Yojimbo is is, is Mufune is pissed. Mifune yes. wakes up in the morning pissed off, you know. Yes. And 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 that's that's kind of what what Franco Nero brings in Django. It's that mm-hmm. same passionate energy. Whereas the man with no name is is almost defined by his utter lack of passion, his his utter coldness, yes. and that's where you know the Denzels and the, the the Mad Maxes and and those kinds of characters, and even Costner and the. But you know, I mean, yeah, shit, Costner's been you know like Doing the co- body bodyguard, <laughs> Waterworld, the yes. Postman, like yeah. Um, so you know, it, but they're defined almost by their lack of passion. It's it's when they actually get passionate that they get in trouble. Uh, yes. And so I, I think that's that's a f- a very fundamental difference um, in the two movies. And I, I'll fully admit it has actually been many many moons since I watched *Yo, Jimbo*. I, I meant to rewatch it for this, but I just ran out of time. Mm. So if I'm if I'm sort of misremembering you know, characterizations and stuff. I I apologize, but that's my memory of Yojimbo. Is a, it's just Mafune is, is a much Mafune is just such a larger than life actor. He's just he's so big on the screen. And uh and Eastwood, you know, eventually would grow into that, but he's certainly not here. He cuts, he cuts a stunning presence. You can't take your eyes off him, but he's definitely not a larger-than-life actor in this movie. No,
1: which is why I said like, when he's later on, he's definitely that Kind of built up that I know how to be li- more larger than life, but Harry, I don't, I don't think he had that capability in him yet. Um, he kind of needed this movie to kind of learn how to do it, and because everyone is playing bigger around him, like all the performances are very big, except for his, which I think works really amazingly. I saw your for the first time a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, no, he is that. Just there's scenes of um I just strutting around the village, and. That's all it is. You just see him, and you're right. He woke up pissed, and he is pissed, and he's just going to take it out on everyone he meets. It's not necessarily a sense of right or wrong with him. It's more of a, I'm annoyed. I don't like you, so this is what, this is what's going to happen, and I'm going to make because I think he feels like a, almost like an evil imp in Yojimbo. Like he's this, uh, which we'll get into because I think that is something Leone took from Yojimbo um, is that this kind of is a spectral figure. Um, Clint Eastwood would make it literal and think in High Planes Drifter. Um, yeah. But yeah, but that's kind of the idea. And I've always saw Yujimbo as this weird little imp creature who just comes into a town to create more mischief. Um, that was my sort of takeaway from that movie. Where this one, is, he's, yeah, the man with no name is a spectral figure. He comes in, um, and it's not necessarily to right wrongs. It's, you don't know why he's there. Like in High Planes Drifter, you know it's a straight revenge movie. But this one, I'm like, I don't know, yeah, as you said, he, when he sees a line that has crossed for him personally, that's when he takes action beforehand. He's just annoying that poor bartender going, well, I'm going to go over here and make money. It's like, you'll die. Yeah, maybe it will, but probably not, because I know I'm good. So I can probably take these guys out. And it's you can kind of see that is having fun with it a little bit. Clint Eastwood, you, can, you can't read him.
2: No, and it really takes, you know, it's it's interesting because he doesn't really have a major co-star in this one. But if you look at the other two, man, with no name movies, which I know you're going to cover. But I think it's pretty fair to say he is, for movies that he ostensibly stars in, he is not... The most interesting characters in any of them no you know i mean clearly lee van cleef and for a few dollars more that's that's lee van cleef's movie eastwood's just along for the ride and then yeah. i don't like eli wallach's performance in the good the bad and the ugly i think he plays it too broad but, but we- he, he's he's certainly making a bigger impression than eastwood does
1: I agree with that. Actually, I'm a little bit nervous because the good, the bad and the ugly is not my favorite Leonie. And I know it's so beloved. So I'm going to be a little, thank you. but no, I think Eli Wallet goes way too big and leave Cleef owns both for a few dollars more. And also, um, good, bad, the ugly, just the, the leave Lee, Lee Van Cleef love will be, uh, will be very large. Um, but, Yeah, he's not. He's not the main. He's kind of the driver. He's not even. No, he is the driver because he kind of is catalyzing things. Like I love when he puts the two dead soldiers, um, on on the grave and to try sort of to try and make believe that two soldiers survived the massacre to go and tell other people. So you've got the two gangs kind of racing to one kill them, one to try and get the information so they can, like, um, thing. But it's sort of more. I do like the town he's created. Like I love how the sheriff is such a spineless weasel um i love the bartender who's just kind of like given up very much like in omega Domes, and he's just like ah oh, i make no money i'm really so you're, if you're not going to pay me i'm not surprised um i love the coffin builder he's the best um so yeah they've got these little things in the town which you kind of find more interesting than him but he's the one who's causing all the all the ripples
2: i i love the coffin builder especially this time because i i love that um i Sam Raimi clearly played paid homage to him and The Quick and the Dead because the <laughs> Coffin Builder in The Quick and the Dead looks exactly like him. Yeah. Um, but no, and that's you know, and you can even kind of see that you know if you go to a later Leone movie, just. Contrast Eastwood's performance versus Charles Bronson's in Once Upon a Time in the West. They're yes. both men of a very limited speech mm. throughout the movie, but Bronson conveys so much more emotion in that movie. You know, and literally all he does
1: with the harmonica, you can see t- there's emotion boiling up, and it's one of his best performances.
2: Like, it's- and literally all he does for most of the movie is just recite names at Henry yeah. Fonda, you know, but there's so much behind that. That, that, that is a performance that. I don't think there's any chance Eastwood could have pulled off in no. that movie. Um, I just know there's just no way that movie needs Bronson, um, which is, is, you know, is fine. I mean, again, for, for being a, a mediocre sort of limited actor in this, Leone knew how to use that to maximum effect. I mean, if you want to take a limited actor and, and, create a character that's going to take full advantage of those blue eyes and that jawline and, and stuff like that. You know, that's exactly what he does here. Um, you know, he makes an icon. He doesn't, we don't get a performance, but we get an icon. I'm I'm not sure that that's a bad trade-off.
1: No, I mean, it's weird. I mean, Clint Eastwood has always had a very specific kind of charisma. I think, yeah, he does give good performances later on where you can tell he's actually trying to conjure up emotion. Uh, motion he didn't have that ability i mean it's the whole thing of he went to italy because he wasn't getting work in in america like a lot of period at that time you go to italy you make a couple about five movies it's the um once upon a time in hollywood thing and then you'd go back home and then maybe in a couple of years you'd go back to italy make five more movies go home yeah leone storm just went oh i can use that figure yeah the guy is not really capable of giving a performance but i the story i don't need him to and it's a really, it's because I, I know he wasn't his first choice, um, but I think he wanted Henry Fonda. Like it, like um, it took him a while to get him into a movie, but he finally did. I know for yeah, once upon he... a of time in the West, he flew over to LA to plead. Look, I know you don't like playing bad guys, but trust me on this, you need to be in. <laughs> He wanted
2: he wanted Fonda and they couldn't afford him and then he actually went to Bronson and Bronson turned it down uh, basically because he wasn't impressed with the script. Mm. Um and so you know it all kind of worked out because he eventually does get Bronson and Fonda in in my opinion the greatest mm. western of all time it is, and yeah. we get the birth of an icon because he had to settle for for Eastwood in this. Um, yeah,
1: it's working with what you have again and going okay so I couldn't get the people who can exude emotion who maybe could do something similar to what uh, Mifuna was doing. Um, But then I got this guy Eastwood and he looks good in a poncho and a hat and with a cigarette, cigarette, whatever those, those things are called. Uh, I can use that. I can actually make that work. And it really does. Like it is such a simple little movie, but yeah, yeah. As I said, there's a confidence to it of, I don't, think I can I don't know I can't get away with this so I'm just going to make you sit on these emotions that are very uncomfortable because these are not good people and when you are dealing with a person of the brunt of it it's heartbreaking because the slowly when you realize what's happening to Marianne Pope you're like oh no it's it's heartbreaking and it's a slow reveal that's burning under the surface like yeah this movie's a vibe and it does bring out emotion just not in the ways you expect it to.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and again, it's something. The the other thing that I really appreciate about it in in the pantheon of you know Leone movies is, it's a tight ninety nine minutes. I mean, yeah. it is it is a tight, efficient little movie. Uh, you know, I love the fact that Once Upon a Time in the West and Once Upon a Time in America, even the Good, the Bad, the Ugly. I love that they're these sprawling epics, but it is nice to see what Leone did with just a tight little. To the point movie, there's not I mean, the the ultimate story of this, the ultimate story of Red Harvest is not a story of depth, And it shouldn't be. It it doesn't need to be anything more than what it is. And and Leone really gets that right. Like, this is not a complicated movie. It's very straightforward. But what makes it is everything he does in the margins to surround the story.
1: Yeah, I mean, once you sort of have a look at uh, For a Few Dollars More, which is all about the margins and the minutiae in between, because, yeah, it's it's a very simple story and it doesn't need to have debt. You get to Once Upon a Time in America, which it is all hazy, dream, surreal, um, kind of bizarre kind of uh, things. Um, I, I I swear none of those people in that movie knew what they were shooting like. They were just told to do a thing and they went, oh, okay, um and it's one of the greatest movies ever Into to the point where I'm not entirely sure if I can describe Once Upon a Time in America as a movie it's something else <laughs> I don't quite know what um but and it's always making you live in these very uncomfortable moments especially with De Niro, where I'm like Ugh, okay I spend five hours with this man okay let's go um but this one yeah it's very short it's to the point yes and it's but it's all about the minutiae and you going back to the ML um, who again lived in those minutia moments, like making you sit in these things that m- at the time, even a uh, European film wasn't doing. And you get these two filmmakers who kind of took American culture and made it the minutia of American culture or Ma- American filmmaking, which is extraordinary. And it changed filmmaking. Like people saw that and went, Oh wait, you can do that? I didn't think you could actually do a, a, do that in a movie and and it kind of just keeps carrying on in in different and various ways.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um <clears throat> yeah. Knock stuff over. Uh, anyway, uh, it, yeah, I'm so excited about A Fistful of Dollars. I'm just knocking stuff off on my desk here. but uh,
1: <laughs> Much like Ramon when he finds out that he's killed – that um, the guy's killed more of his men. So. <laughs> yeah,
2: yep. No, it's – you know, and it's one of those things where it is, it is funny because it's like when we have a movie like this, I almost have a hard time thinking about, you know, what can I even say about mm. A Fistful of Dollars? Like it, it's it, – it is just – what it is it is it is a revolutionary movie from a revolutionary filmmaker who who you know like you said changed cinema i mean you just you look at for me you look at all my favorite directors uh from Raimi to Wu to john hyams even you know and they're all so heavily influenced by leone it, yeah. it's it's almost more interesting to think about you know the movies that he didn't make and and the way he influenced. I mean, Jesus, the best action movie of the year this year, Chad Stahelski literally said it was his homage to the good, the bad and the ugly. Yeah. You know, um,
1: it really was. I was sort of thinking, I'm like, it took me a while and then I got to the end. I'm like, oh, wait, this whole movie's been good, the bad, the ugly. Oh, I get it now. (laughs) Took me the three hours of the movie, but yeah, I got there in the end.
2: (laughs) Yeah. You know, and so it is, it is one of those things. It's, but it is, it is a bit, interesting because the, the movie itself is and I don't again don't we I don't mean this as a criticism but it's a pretty slight movie you know you're gonna have I think some more way more interesting discussions when you get into to for a few dollars more in the good the bad and the ugly because there's a lot more meat on the bones of those movies this there
1: is, yeah I mean even when I was the grappling gun scene um in in it I was just sort of watching it and went oh yeah Django because the second best uh, director of italian vector director of western sorry um i will never tire of that joke from once upon a time in, in hollywood um did a bit of grappling gun scene because he probably because they two knew each other i think um they went and saw Jimbo together and they were just talking about it and then leone ended up making making this movie um he saw that grappling gun scene and went oh yeah see i see what you're doing but i can do it way better and then you get one of the greatest shootout scenes ever in in django when he when you find out what's in the coffin it's um, it's kind of glorious. But even though that scene, I would say, is actually kind of slight. Like, yeah, it's not, it's not as dynamically staged as what other people would do it. But you can kind of see the, the seeds of it that Ivan Krabutschy would take and go, oh well, you just put Franco Nero with a gra- grappling gun, and then it's just going to be chest kiss cinema.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and so it just, yeah, it's 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 interesting because again, like, yeah, it just. I love this movie. I love it so much. I think it's absolutely brilliant. But I, I, I think it's, it's more valuable for what it springboards to oh. than what it actually is as a movie.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I keep going back to Denzel Washington and The Equalizer because that is the most modern um, version of it that I can think of. But, yeah, I mean, we don't get bad Max. We don't get The Equalizer. We don't get um, uh, so many uh, movies – I mean, we might get a version of Omega Doom because of Red Harvest, but even then, he's giving a story credit to Kurosawa. So, it, so, it, but even though it's more kind of shot, it's a little bit more shot like Leone, um, just in terms of the close-ups and just how he's kind of going, oh, okay, I have this small space, I have this much money, this is how I'm going to shoot it, where this uh, Kurosawa was always about the landscapes. Like, how much landscape can I show in a, in a, in a frame? it is one of the most influential movies ever made. Um, and it was based on another <laughs> influential director. So yeah, I just love the idea of how different movies would be if we never had Leonie or Kurosawa, it would not be as interesting. Like we need the, or even Melville, like who redefined how we see the noir. Like he just yep. went and just twisted around, same with the Western twisted around, Kurosawa just twisted around and you get something completely different. And without those filmmakers, the film is just, the influences you just i can't imagine how it would look it would just be completely different
2: well yeah you get you know a perfect example and this is not again not a slight on this movie but you you look at the difference between seven samurai and the magnificent seven yeah and how as much as i love the magnificent seven it's a great movie but it is again very much within that very established western american western framework Mm. versus yojimbo then remixed by somebody who's just as as visionary and and revolutionary as kurosawa is you get a very different animal uh you get you get a movie that that is as i love the magnificent seven nobody is going to talk about the magnificent seven changing cinema really um but you are we are talking about how A Fistful of Dollars changed cinema. And then that's what I think really is the difference to, to just kind of go along with what you were saying, that how amazing these guys were that, that they took this language, this universal language of film, and they saw it in such a different way than anybody had ever seen it before. Um, and, and that's, that's where I, I go back to every time I watch A Fistful of Dollars. I just have to always remind myself that as as much as I love the movie and as much fun as it is, it is a, a slighter movie than what I typically want out of Leone. But it's because of this movie that we get the great Leone masterpieces later on. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's... Uh, but again, like I said, it's tough though because I, I honestly, I don't have much more to say about no, the actual me,
1: movie. Me either. All I can sort of say is, yeah, I mean, Rami's probably the perfect example of someone who took Leone style and kind of ran with it. And again twisted it again to something else and he added slapstick and thing, but you just watch the click in the dead and you're like, yeah, that's Leone. That's Ramey going, Hey, you know, who was a good filmmaker? Sergio Leone. And um, again, another movie that's grown in estimation over the years, because people kind of realizing, Oh yeah, I see what you did there. Yeah. You're awesome. And you put the Ramey kind of stuff in there and all that kind of thing. But it's just one of those movies that is very slight. There's nothing much to it. Um, but yet it was the first thing to change history yes maybe good and the bad and the ugly has more meat to it and then you really get because i know uh, leone and um miraconi work closely together probably more um closely than miraconi wanted because they kept wanting to not do those movies and then leone would go to his house and yell at him for an hour about now we need to do <laughs> to do this i have a vision and you're part of it um and Maraconi's score changed everything. I mean, he was already working; was already really well established, established, composer by that stage. But that score is iconic for a reason, and it just. But then it gets built on. So yeah, I think that's all we can really say about it. You know what? Great movie.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, again, it feels a bit weird that we spent as much time talking about an Albert Pugh movie, but I mean, it is what it is. Like, it's a great movie. It's, it's, it's great a great movie. movie. Yeah. And Leonie's a great director, you know, and and that's that's I I don't want to just kind of beat the dead horse here. But it's uh yeah. Great movie. No, Good, great time. movie. Loved, Good time. Loved. Loved rewatching it. Absolutely loved rewatching it.
1: Love rewatching it. Uh, it is a very important movie, even though it is slight. Um, but yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Um, no, it started so much. Um, but thank you so much for coming on and talking about these movies. It's always a blast hanging out. And I finally kept you. Um, didn't keep you. Like before, I was talking about movies. Yeah.
2: yeah, no, no, no. I, you're, you're good. Uh, I, uh, well, and again, that's a perfect example because I, 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 was thinking that's why I was like, I need to come up with more to talk about because it's like this is schlock and awe. I'm supposed to be going four hours on this, um, but no, we're still, I think, over two. So you yeah. know, it's not like it's not like we're 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 not we're not coming in at. 70 minutes here on this we're we're not coming in at albert pune run times on this we're uh we're coming in at sergio leone run times exactly uh, yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) all right yeah Yeah. no thank you linds i always you know i love coming on and talking to you i always have such a great time coming on this show no it's,
1: it's always a blast hanging out um before we go please tell people where they can find your good
0: work
2: sure you can uh find me uh ish on twitter uh, and letterboxd at Hibachi justice but more importantly you can find uh action for everyone on twitter at a40 podcast we're now on blue sky at a40 podcast uh dot blue sky social however it but it's at a40 podcast uh, you can go to Linktree and find all our other social media links that i do not update uh but they're there uh linktree slash a40 podcast and you can listen to us anywhere podcasts can be found
1: uh, yeah, please listen to uh you already are probably listening to Action for Everyone because it is one of the best podcasts out there at the moment. Um it's yeah, it's always a pleasure to talk. Uh yeah, th- this is gonna be an amazing series. Um it's gonna be so much more Leone, so much more Leone zoom shots, so much more Marricone, so much more just Clint Eastwood um grinding his teeth, and then oh, it's gonna be um absolutely uh, amazing. Um the pairings are yeah, they're they're kind of all over the place, which I'm I'm kind of loving um but yeah if you want to follow shock and or you can do that we're on all the pods um also uh twitter shock and all one same with instagram i'm also trying out blue sky i think it's just Lindsay at uh uh s and um and i'm also on threads i don't know i'm just trying everything at the moment which is uh shock and all one i think it is but uh, anyway um i use it's same as the instagram thing um it's all very confusing actually uh but we'll see how we go um but yeah we will be back with of course, uh, for a few dollars more, which is going to be epic. And then the Lee Van Cleef love can really begin. Um, But again, thank you, Mike, so much for coming on and talking about this. This has been amazing. It's always fun to hang out. And um, yeah, we will be back with another double feature. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye.